Hello and welcome back to the Raspberry Podcast. Today I'm joined by Pete Irvin. Pete is a super old school UK MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guy uh, based out of the Northeast. He's based in Newcastle and really one of the pioneering guys for uh, MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in that area. He was out living in Brazil, training Jiu-Jitsu in the early 2000s, so super, super early. Um, so a really interesting time to be out there training in Brazil. Not very many people were doing that at all. Uh, he also has had a very successful pro MMA career himself um, and is now a coach and owner of his own gym. Uh, it was great to sit down and chat to Pete, someone I've known for a really long time uh, or known of for a really long time. And it was good to finally sit down and chat to him. He talks about his time in Brazil, how he got into martial arts um, and a lot of his interesting takes on the modern mixed martial arts scene. I really enjoyed recording this one and I hope you guys enjoy listening. Check it out. Firstly, uh, Pete, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor being on the list with all the the names on this podcast is. well I, well i feel like uh you need to be on this podcast because at, for exactly that reason you know um i've spoken i've had the pleasure of speaking to so many really early um guys in the uk mma and grappling scene and pioneers in the sport in the uk especially and and i could not that that list is certainly not complete without you oh thanks that's very flattering um so you know look, with that being said i say let's just get straight into this you you were super early into martial arts, you know, the, the, the body martial arts stuff, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA in the UK. What, how did you first get into that? Um, well, you know, normally, normally I tell people like, oh, just the typical story. I lived in a, I lived in a rough bit of, bit of town. I was a punk rocker, so I brought a lot of attention to myself. So I was getting into fights and I wasn't coming off very well. And so I just wanted to train in the same way that, Everybody else wants to be handy, but there wasn't really the the sport of mixed martial arts around at the time. So I just wanted to train just martial arts, and I just mm. kind of fell into like the early the early scene just by just by fluke. But I think actually the real the real reason is a little that what I wanted to pursue like a career as a prize fighter. Mm. Um, I wanted to be I wanted to be a a marine. I wanted to be an elite soldier. Ever since being a kid, you know, my grandfather had served in the Durham Light Infantry, and they, he was in the the second wave of D-Day. Oh wow! And uh, you know, he was uh, he was a brave guy, and uh, he he survived the war, but he um he, he didn't survive until I I never met him. Mm. Um, but like, obviously, we grew up with this uh, sort of mythologized kind of version of uh, you know the way the good guys, and I thought the idea of being an elite soldier that was that was it for me. And uh, do you remember there was a um, a series called The World at War? Uh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, a wonderful series. It's really stood up the test of time. But it was one of the first sort of kind of honest versions mm. uh, where you start to look and go, oh, God, it's not as simple as goodies versus bodies. We're, yeah. not, we're not strictly the good guys. And then this was around the time that after, uh, after the Iraq War, which, of course, as a child, I was thinking, we are the good guys, you know. And I started seeing the guys coming back, and obviously we didn't know what PTSD was, and stuff. I said didn't have an appreciation of this. And I started looking at boys coming back from uh, from my town and thinking these guys aren't well. There's something there's something wrong. And as I started to mature and become more politically aware, I realized, Christ, I can't do this. You know, like mm. I, I wanted to be elite in some sense, but I thought I, I'm I I don't want to die, and I really I, I don't want to kill for these bastards. 
and uh, and it left me completely lost. I ended wow. up ended up going completely opposite direction, and and I didn't didn't live a good life. Um, but it became kind of so more rebellious and anti-authoritarian, and uh, and it, but it left me lost. You know, because I I'd, I'd fixated on this idea since being a kid that I was going to be an elite soldier, and then prize fighting seemed to offer some way that I could recapture that, that I could mm. I, I could impose this discipline on myself to be in some sense elite. Yeah, it's like a, it's that warrior archetype, right? But oh, it, yeah. But, but but expressed in a far more um, controlled. You don't actually have to kill anyone. You don't have to put your life really in danger but you can still get out some of that, what is in, innate in many men, which is that desire to kind of fulfill that warrior path. Yeah, yeah. I, w I was super into that, uh, that kind of narrative when I was, mm. when I was young. It's very, it's very appealing to young men. Uh, now, I've, bit, I've changed my perspective a little bit. But, uh, yeah, but is that, do, have you changed your perspective as how it relates to you at this stage in your life? Or have you changed your perspective of how you believe uh, someone of any age should relate to that idea? Oh, well, both, both. But uh, in terms of the sport of mixed martial arts, I'm, uh, I'm growing increasingly sour on it. I've always, mm. I've always had very conflicted feelings about fighting. Um, I, for, my, for myself and for encouraging other people to do it. Mm. For myself, I didn't care because I, I just, I wanted to die. You know, I wanted to die in the ring. You know, mm. and uh, and then when I'm when I'm there as a coach now, especially now that I'm a little bit older, I think like Christ, the last thing I want is for something bad to happen to these guys because mm. I'm the coach. I'm it's going to be me who has to phone your mom and that, dad. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how I could live with it. And uh, but as an athlete, I, I you know I completely accepted that risk. I kind of almost almost exaggerated that risk to myself. It's very unlikely that anybody's going to die in a mixed martial arts contest. I mean, but the possibility is always there. And in this way, we kind of play with you know the the life and death struggle. You know, mm. can make a game out of it and and repeat it and repeat it. But for other people, I'd, I'm certainly a lot less cavalier about it. And uh, I'm getting. I'm finding it harder and harder to work corners and really? encourage people to do this. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's sending me around the bend, to be honest. I think really? I'm, I'm going to have to find uh, some other occupation. But jujitsu, this is why I like jujitsu as well, because I feel okay about telling anyone, anyone go and compete. Yeah. Um, the risks are not, uh, they're not too much to, to reconcile with. We're mixed martial arts. Not just for the physical danger, but you know, for the the brain, yeah, the physical danger to the to the yeah. brain, and and the rest of the body. Yeah, but the the career prospects, yeah, it's it's I can't I can't justify encouraging people to go down this path anymore. So yeah, it's it's a shame the way the sports ended up. That's uh, really fascinating, uh, and I appreciate you being so open and honest about that. It's something that I really also feel. Um, obviously, I I got into to jiu-jitsu with the intention of getting into MMA and I was I, I feel grateful that I never did uh, that by the time it got to the stage of okay you know you're 18 now 19 you've been training jiu-jitsu for a few years now would be the time to start getting some striking in by that point I was so enamored with um, jiu-jitsu that I had no desire to take time away from that to train striking and now I'm at the stage where I would never do MMA I, it, I, it would it, and actually working for Cage Warriors has solidified that position for me because you see the reality 
and and I, I'm sure that's a perspective that you have even more so as a coach where most people who watch MMA you see firstly you're watching the result of all the hard work you're watching what is being presented behind the camera or in front of the camera and you a lot of the time you're seeing it at the absolute highest level and what you're missing is it's the iceberg right you're seeing 10% of it and 90% underneath is brutal a lot of it's brutal and a lot of it's just fucking boring as well <laughs> like like Owen was saying on the last time like living the elite lifestyle yeah. you know you get like you get what you know 15 minutes of massive excitement tops yeah. and then for weeks and weeks of just just drudgery yeah that's yeah <laughs> do you ever regret not not just having one or two bouts does it do you feel like you missed out on something i don't think so i i really don't i uh there's a part of me maybe that that wishes that i did one or two and there's people out there who still think yeah but you can do it you know six months of stand up you shoot a takedown you, you know i'm going to be able to outgrapple most people but um i just have no i have no desire to get punched in the head to be honest with you i really don't like the whole concept of it i'm like i'm very happy to just say I don't want to be punched in the head. I've got no bravado about, you know, take, you know, getting kicked in the face or kicked in the body or in the leg or getting head, but you know, uh, elbowed in the head or whatever. <laughs> I've got no desire to do it. And I'm quite happy to just roll around and choke people instead. <laughs> That's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, it's definitely an interesting one. Do you, do you think that that, I mean, the sport of MMA, especially in the UK has become a lot safer there's a lot more testing. We've got like safe MMA in place and there's a lot of stuff where I feel like the guys at the top of the sport are really trying to make sure that the sport can be as safe as possible. But ultimately, it's it's mixed martial arts. It's never going to be fully safe. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no two ways around it. It's, it's just, it's not good for you. Mm. But what's the alternative? I wonder, I wonder what my life would have been like if I'd chosen something else. And I've had a lot of times where I've thought, Man, did I did I waste my life? Uh, mm. You know, I I didn't waste my life. I was you know just sat there and played PlayStation or went to the boogies or went to the pub. You know, not that kind of waste. You know, but you know, you make this this moral calculation. Like every day you go to bed and say, was the world better because I was in it? Was it worse because I was in it, or is the world indifferent? You know, mm. so you have this kind of like uh, karmic ba- bank balance. Mm. And uh, and a lot of the time, I think even on my best days in MMA where I really felt that I achieved something, I thought, well, that, that bank balance was at best neutral and maybe it was negative. Mm. You know, I think I can have another day when all I did was like make some packed lunches and clean some clothes and, you know, read some bedtime stories. I thought, okay, well, there's, the world was better for somebody else because I was in it that day. You know, and it's, you know, nothing glamorous. Mm. But I think what else could I have done? You know, I mean, I know that I couldn't have actually been a doctor. I didn't have the economic means. You know? yeah. But everybody, you know, this meme, you know, it takes uh, the same amount of time to become a doctor as it does to take, earn this belt, you yeah. know? which is obviously good. It's the, the worst case of false equivalence. Yeah. You know? But it's not, there's, there's, some, there's something there. There's, and there's something that, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of a polemic statement, isn't it? But, you know, um, I imagine what I could have done with my life if I'd been a doctor. And I think you know I have to make this make this comparison. Did I put my did I put my energies in the right place? Mm. Do you not think that you have? I, I I feel like as a coach, maybe not as a fighter, but as a coach, which you are now, and you've got a gym here, and you've got lots of guys, and you do work with, and something that I want to talk about more later, with like work with refugees who have come over and stuff like that. Do you not feel that coaching is putting 
you know, money into that karmic balance? I hope so. I try. I try to make it like that. I try to. But you know, like with, with the coaching thing, you know, you give me a lot of flattery at the beginning here in the, on the introduction, which I really appreciate. But I, I got a good reputation early on, just purely because I, I knew things that other people didn't know. I, I had access to um, to elite environments that other people hadn't had yet and I had access to information that other people hadn't had yet you know there's not the YouTube explosion there wasn't Mm. so many so many schools around so I got this reputation as being a good coach but really actually like I'm I'm not a bad teacher I'm not a very good coach because I struggle to relate to people you know like on the personal aspect that is the coaching part above teaching I really find it hard there's only a handful of people that I can really understand and relate to Mm. because they're fanatical you know, like they are like I was when I was their age. Mm. You know, guys like Harry and George, you know, yeah. like they're all in and I get them, you know, like and, and they get me back. And with a lot of with a lot of other people, I really struggle. I really struggle to relate. So I'm I'm good at teaching, you know, and like, you know, like we, we, we talked the other day yeah. about how you'd refined your process and, you know, that this is a, a skill that can, can continue to improve. And I feel like that's something that I can continue to improve even as my body deteriorates. I can't produce the 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 performance that I that I used to, yeah. but I can increase my knowledge and I can increase my ability to communicate that. But I don't I don't have a good coaching skill. I don't have the ability to relate unless that person is just on my wavelength. You know, that's it, that's a really interesting concept there, which is you've made this differentiation between a teacher or an instructor and a coach, and that differentiation is that ability to relate on a deeper level with the person that you're working with. Mm. Yeah, this, you know, I mean, you can you can educate yourself to some extent about this. You know, there's ways to there's ways to figure out what approach to take with an individual athlete, or you can just have a uh, just a program that people conform to or don't. Mm. This is also this is also like a, a, a possible thing. You take like uh, Iowa style wrestling. You know, you take like this. Oh God, who was the guy? Ah, oh, there was a guy who went to Iowa. Didn't didn't do well in the Iowa program. There went to another college and was absolutely flying mm. because the all-out Iowa method just didn't suit his wrestling style. But if you go to Iowa, that's what you're going to get. There's a local uh, gym around here, a really great amateur boxing gym called Burley, and there's a Burley there's a Burley method. You know, mm. like there's a, there's hallmarks of a of a Burley boxer, and it's it's not like it sounds reductive to sort of go, oh, they just make all the guys box the same way, which is not precisely the case because they get excellent results. You know, but only a certain type of person can survive in that program. Yeah. You know, and that requires them to box a particular way and think a particular way and behave a particular way. You know, and that, that works for them. They get a lot of great results about that. But other guys have to go to another gym because they don't conform to that, that methodology. Some coaches do a great job of like knowing how to talk to one another. One of my friends who was uh, from Sheffield, he used to box as an amateur when he was young. Him and his brother, you know, like typical brothers, born in the... In this, in the same place, lived in the same household, completely different characters, mm. and they both boxed on the same night, and they both had a bad first round. So his brother goes out and boxes, and the coach gets up, the same coach, mm. and says to his brother, "If you box like that in this second round, I'm going to walk away from the corner because you're an embarrassing me." You know? And the kid goes, "All right, well, I'll show you." Goes out and blitzes it, puts the kid away in the second round. The same thing happens to my friend his brother and he comes back to the corner deflated but he's got a completely different mentality and the coach knows him and he says okay son you've taken his best punches mm. couldn't put you down could he okay now 
we're through the first round. You just get out there and you show me what you've got. I know you can do it, son. And he goes out and fights superbly. If he'd flipped the approaches, it, it would have had disastrous results. Mm. So there's an excellent coach who knew how to communicate with his athlete. You know, um, Me, I, I never really had that. I, I, I couldn't, I just could never quite relate to people who didn't think like me. Mm. So I, I got a reputation as a good coach early on, just purely by access from, to information. And then... I would attract the best talent because some of the best talent was already there. And so I had this part, I think there was a couple of years there where um, as a fighter and as a, um, and as a coach, it was like, it was almost a 100% win ratio. You know, wow. it, it was almost 100%. If I, I struggling to remember any defeats, you know, and I thought, God, man, I'm good at this. Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. But it wasn't me. It was just that I had that environment that attracted all of the best people. And of course we were winning. And it was easy to coach those guys because they had big, pieces missing from the game because of access to information that I'd had. So then I could just go, look, you just need to know this set of moves. Easy. I thought I was being a good coach, but really, actually, I just said, well, if you don't believe me, I can prove it because I'm, you know, bigger, stronger, faster. And mm. you know. and then actually what, what it turned out was that everybody else caught up very, very quickly and turned out my coaching wasn't particularly good at all. It was just that I'd had access to information that was sort of in some sense uh, secret mm. um, so then I had to I had to improve a lot um, but still people like you know people sort of give me compliments they knew me back in the day and go oh wow you're like an encyclopedia of jujitsu and I think I know I've seen what you're doing and it's better I didn't know that you know like I just I just knew things that other people didn't have back in the day or maybe caught on to a couple of things that are very obvious now like cage wrestling I used to wrestle with uh, Abdul Muhammad and, uh, and Hassan Moradi and, uh, and they would just absolutely destroy me. They were like really good wrestlers and uh, good MMA wrestlers too, which is again, slightly different skill. But like, man, I just couldn't stay on my feet for a minute with those guys. But when we went on the fence, they, they'd had, you know, they'd had generations of, of, of experience and that had tuition in this. And so if we stand bent over and I wrestle with them, man, I, I couldn't stay on my feet and yeah. there was no way I could get them down. You know, but on the fence, I can, I'm not saying I could get them down, but I could stay up on my feet for that little bit longer. And I thought, okay, this is a different set of skills. You know, and so then I started to develop just a little system, which is primitive by today's standards. You know. But at the time, that was like, if not revolutionary, it was, it was sort of on the cutting edge for the, for the region at least. Mm. Um, but now that's, you know, that's everybody caught up and, and, and surpassed that very quickly. So I just have to continually try to, try to look and address things. And yeah. Yeah, that's a very uh, honest and open approach and, and a review in yourself. But I think I have a feeling you might be being a, a little bit too humble there in some regards. You know, you're talking about, yes, maybe you went and you got information that that a lot of people in the area didn't have access to. But as you just said there, you're also being, you're not simply taking that information and then passing it back on. You're digesting it and, 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 and adjusting it and making changes and developing it and growing it a little bit yourself. Even if eventually the rest of the area and the country would catch up, that's still work that you've put in to make those adjustments. Yeah, well, the, I mean, there's an interesting thing when you talk about, think about technique that whoever, I mean, it's a time for uh, re-examining like notions of intellectual property. Mm. If you see like the techno technology has radically changed the way that people, people view in, uh, uh, intellectual property. You know, and it, how do you how do you claim a technique? You know, like I mean, there's you know many people have techniques named after them. You know, yeah. 
many everybody's got no bladder, right? Yeah. How many will bladders is there? You know, this, so, so you associate it with this person. Or, or the Delhi Heaver God would be the, one of the most famous ones. That people associate this with Delhi Heaver. Or the like Tarika Platas that is yeah, a really yeah. good example, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but of course the Tarika Plata, Russian sambists have been doing a version of this, mm. possibly not as refined, but they've been doing a version of this for forever. We know this. You know, the Delhi Heaver God. Well, of course it, it's like Delhi Heaver himself has said, well, don't I don't play this guard a whole great deal because I've got mm. quite short legs, you know, mm. like so it doesn't suit a lot of the time. You know, but it it would just so happen that his name got attached to this position, you know. So you tend to think of it as, but of course, who who it can't invent this on his own. You need at least one other person there to invent a position, right? Mm. You know, so of course, all of these positions were you know there in the Carlson Gracie gym, like people developing these developing these things, like Kresio, like. Uh, like everybody said to me like oh ask Kresu about his, his sitting god his butterfly god he doesn't call it the butterfly god he calls it the seated god mm. or sitting god yeah. and he's like oh no nothing special I just I was just one of the first guys to do it so somebody asked him at a seminar once my teacher this is my teacher Kresu de Souza and uh, somebody asked him so like how did you create these incredible positions and he said I never created anything mm. you know, I just simply observed what works I thought it was a very powerful statement and sort of very humble, but he never had this desire to put his name onto a position because, well, it wasn't really me. It was a, it was a, a combination of all of these people. So the intellectual property of, of jiu-jitsu or whatever is very hard. It's very hard to pin down. So, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a super interesting topic that I think you're right. I don't think anyone can really claim that they invented something. <clears throat> whenever, I, whenever I teach seminars, um, I never use the word invented. I'll say I came up with this. Yeah. Uh, which implies that I developed it without any external uh, uh, input. Uh, however, I'm under no illusion that I'm the first person to ever do this. And I remember, and I sometimes tell the story of when I first had this epiphany, which was uh, I was probably a bluebell at the time. So we're talking a long time ago now. And I came up. I thought I invented this uh, double arm bar from the mount. So I get the mount position. I was like quite flexible in the hips. And basically I'd be sitting on the chest, uh, uh, like double over hooks on the arms, both feet over the face, arm bar in both arms at the same time. I said, I've, I've invented this sick double arm bar from the mount. And, and the next week I walk into WH Smith and on the cover of Martial Arts Illustrated is Neonor Shembri doing my technique. <laughs> and I realized yeah. that every technique you think you invented probably was done by accident by a Brazilian kid 20 years ago. You know? Yeah, of course. Of course. There's, there's only so many ways to move the human body and people can develop. And <clears throat> when techniques are named after people, I think it's a nice way of honoring the impact and influence that someone has had on the sport and specifically on a position. So for example, if, I mean, it's, I know it's not named after him, but like the half God and Gordo or mm. um, the Kimura and, you know, stuff like this, like these are techniques that have, have uh, the, the, the terminology has moved into the sort of colloquial uh, language of grappling and just a little mark there, but they didn't invent it. It's, it's an interesting one. Initially, oddly, the Brazilians only gave names to positions after Japanese. Yeah. You know, there was no Brazilians taking the names for themselves. You know, even the Delhi Heva God was not 
Uh, Margaret the, the is Deli touched Hiva by Del Hiva. The Jelly God, I think. Yeah. Like that, yeah. Somebody else called it the Del Hiva God and gifted it to him, mm. which is kind of the way it should be. It's like giving yourself yeah. a nickname, right? Yeah. You know, like it's not cool. You do it for yourself. <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so it was only like Ezekiel, uh, Kimura, et cetera, et cetera. They're all named after judo players. Yeah. yeah. Of course, Ezekiel wasn't Japanese, but he was a, a judo guy. And like the, the Americana was named after an American guy, I believe. That, yeah. That I've heard a couple of different versions of this of this history. Yeah. yeah. But appar- apparently saw an American wrestler. I, f- yeah. I forget the name. I should. Yeah, but yeah, um, he's probably kicking himself, going, "I could have had, the, I, I could well, have it named yeah. after my name, but instead they just named it after the country I'm from." That's it, the American. That's it, me. I was the Gringo for all the time I was there. Nobody knew my name. It was just a uh, Gringo. Oh, I get the German, Alemão, because I had blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Brazilian nicknames. Oh man, Brazilian nicknames are funny. Oh, I love them. Go yeah. on. What, what's some of the good? I've had this conversation so many times on the podcast of people saying their favorite Brazilian nicknames because some of them are. They're, they're, they're generally very insulting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go on, some of your favorite. Oh, what was it? What, what, it was on your podcast. Um, the, the guy called Benjus. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did was, you know Shurimi? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I just thought that was the funniest nickname. But like, yeah, it, normally they're just descriptive, like uh, like big nose, baldy, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, Napao. And but it sounds like a bit, uh, yeah. it's a bit more... Um, poetic when said in portuguese yeah <laughs> but you know, like even the ones that are cool like i heard this story uh, this i don't know if this is true or not but shogun apparently like, you know you think shogun okay there's a cool nickname because he's yeah. fighting in japan Super and stuff cool. like that yeah. apparently everybody else had like an atama and stuff like that and shogun came with like like a second-hand judo gi that didn't fit properly and yeah. it was shogun <laughs> brand it's like so his nickname actually means shit gi <laughs> i don't know if this is true i don't know if this is true yeah i like that i like that a lot um, since, <coughs> since we're talking about it a little bit, this is a big thing that I wanted to chat to you about, which was, um, your time in Brazil, you move in, you know, you move into Brazil, you were trained in Brazil super early. Um, uh, before we get onto that, how did you first get into sort of mixed martial arts or, or what year was it? Do you remember that you first got into fighting? So, well, actually I started with uh, traditional Japanese jujitsu and there was a, a chap called Jamie Driscoll. It was um, he he gave me a job, and I I, I couldn't find work because I was oh, I was a shitbag basically. Yeah. I was I was wasting my life. And the guy gave me a chance, gave me a job, and he had a traditional jujitsu club. Do you know how and, old you uh, were at this point? This oh, I was already twenty years old. Okay. Um. So th- this I didn't have any sports background. I had I you know I'd stopped I'd stopped training few years beforehand and I missed that really important phase of athletic development so I was useless when I got on there I couldn't do 10 push-ups I couldn't do 10 sit-ups it was pathetic you know so they made me go on the beginner's mat for a long time you know so I always try to reinforce this to the guys you know when I'm trying to make them do solo drills and you can see them like going like that's just you know I'll just do a couple of reps and then get the back of the queue and then just show me some techniques Mm. this is this is so important important stuff yeah learning how to move yeah. yeah, this is what, uh, one of the things that like jujitsu really lacks a mm. uh, fundamental where like in in this sense judo is much far, it's far superior the methodology of physical development yes. and uh, it, it's and it's partly it's due to the the the, the constraint of having so many options in jujitsu. Yeah, you know, in, in judo, okay, yeah, okay, there, there are many things to know, you know, but you can see people like have a handful of skills or they, they kind of have branches of particular particular throws where in jiu-jitsu it's just it's endless yeah, yeah. i mean you like a judo fighter might um 
you know, might be attracted to a particular throw to begin with, and then they change the style a little bit or whatever. But you kind of have these families of throws that people can identify quite rapidly what they are. When I'm sure every jiu-jitsu person has experienced like big phases where they've, they've gone from being a guard player to being a top player or vice versa. And, you know, there's just, there's so many options. It's mm. very, very hard to, to, to know where to put your attention. But physical uh, development is really lacking in jiu-jitsu and uh, in a formal way anyway. Um, so when you see like like judo fighters, you know, especially ones that have come from from being really young, they build these really really robust bodies. Same with wrestlers, and jujitsu people often don't. They they can they can quite easily like go through years of training and still not have the kind of physicality that's really necessary to be a competitive athlete. Mm. So I can't remember what my initial point was. Oh, we were talking about how I started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ended up getting sidetracked again. That's all right. Yeah, so we we, we love a good sidetrack. So yeah, well, yeah. Um, I I, be, I began with this, and I was, I was hopeless. You know, but I I would see the the black belts doing these really dynamic uh, uh, judo style throws, and uh, and I really really wanted to get involved with this. But they made me do the fundamentals, mm. you know, and I'm so glad that they mm. did. Um, but yeah, um, really, the the problem with this was that there was no competitive format, and I was just dying to prove myself. You know, like because I was insecure. You know, so I wanted to like I wanted to prove to myself. You know, but I wanted other people to see me. You know what I mean? It wasn't enough to do it in the gym. I had to get on a show and make sure everybody knew that I was a brave guy and then don't mess with me. You so, so so, you you wanted to, you had this idea of competing in prize fighting yeah. before mm. you did any sort of training. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you started martial arts with the intention of fighting. Yeah, yeah. And um, was there even... The, there couldn't was there even MMA at that point? There was some shows going on. I only discovered that this. That you were aware uh, of or I only discovered this a little bit later. Okay. Actually, interestingly, like I trained judo here for a little while. Um I trained uh, trained some judo in Brazil, but I trained judo here a little while with um this guy called Sensei uh, Steve Megan, who's a um or like a real old school guy. So all those guys trained at the the Kodakan. Mm. You know, they're like the like military guys. Mm. And uh, he was really, really tough. And many years before, un- you know, not knowing that this was happening in Brazil, you know, he went and trained some Thai boxing at uh, at Sotanical Gym with uh, my coach Barry Norman, and uh, with the intention that they were going to challenge other martial arts. And they went and did this. They put out challenge matches to karate schools and and whoever else who were, whoever they take us, and basically did Valley Tudo fights. Mm. You know. It's just that you know they never they never did it in a commercial way. You know, but actually they had this idea just the same as they had in Brazil. And I'm sure this happened and these all were over judo the world. Guys. Judo guys, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And because I to my knowledge, the the, the the idea of doing challenge matches was frowned upon by judo. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm not sure how the sort of the, the authorities thought about this. Yeah. Maybe I you know, maybe I've said something that I shouldn't have said, yeah. But this but yeah, but statute the, of limitations. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but this happened to you know, they were real tough guys. They wanted to prove that their martial art was effective. They also realized that striking was gonna be a, a necessary thing, even if it was just to understand seeing kicks and punches coming at them mm. in order to deal with from a good kicker and puncher. You know, so they might not have ever even intended to be like become excellent tie boxers but just they just they had the right idea yeah but just they, they just never pursued it in a commercial way hmm. oh i so, get sidetracked again sorry that's right no no no, no. The, do, do you know what this is how we like to do the podcast is we we look at your journey but then we we get off on these sidetracks and that's when a lot of the gems come up like stuff like that uh it's just my job to steer you back and when 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 okay. when, when you're at the end of that road so you're so you're you've started japanese jiu-jitsu mm. With the intention of doing some sort of 
competitive combat, but not really with an idea of what exactly it is you want to do. Yeah, yeah. The I think probably just you know in the same way that everybody's notions are are formed as a kid by you know Van Damme's uh, kickboxer and blood sport, yeah, and End of the Dragon or whatever else. You know, I just thought like I just I just want to want to fight people and wanted mm. to be seen fighting mm. people. I wanted people mm. to know. So yeah, I I I forget even how I managed to meet them, but there was a bunch of guys at the AFC John Atkins Advanced Fight Fighting Center. So. Uh, John was again he was one of those original guys like I think his background had been uh, originally in ninjutsu you know but he was like a like a real like practical martial artist mm. he was a doorman you know so there was no there was no fantasy about his ninjutsu it wasn't yeah. pretending you're invisible and letting, letting off smoke bombs it was it was grappling was what he was really? doing grappling against weapons you know so really? like, I think like normally now if you said to somebody ninjutsu they'd think ah it's some goofy yeah. nerdy thing not John's ninjutsu no 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 wow. no they, they, they were for real you know because he was really having to deal with people who were you know, bringing bats and knives and things like that. You know, he was a real old school tough guy. Um, and then he wound up in with uh, Jeff Thompson. And of course, they had the Animal Day stuff, which was the nascent of, um, you know, uh, MMA challenge style fighting. Yeah. You know, and so he was doing that way back in the day. He got um, in touch with the Machados, went over to the USA and uh, trained with the Machados. Um, so yeah, so John was really the guy who kind of invented MMA. It was they called it cross training, you know. But essentially, we're just doing some wrestling, some boxing, some jujitsu, and putting it all together. So there was a group of guys there who were fighting. Um, Do you remember what year that was? God, this must have been two thousand and one. Okay. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, it must have been two thousand and one. Uh, and there was this guy called Gavin Bradley. There, Gavin was a tough guy. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Take your time. <clears throat> Sorry, I don't know. I just hadn't thought about him for a little while, so. I understand. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Gav was a tough guy. He fought Lee Remedios. You know, yeah. He was one of them guys, he would fight anybody. Do you know what I mean? You know, you know how we have some people who say like, I'll fight anybody. Mm. But like, they go and they fall over for them. I mean, mm. I'll get 200 quid to show my face and then fall over on the first punch. Gav would fight anybody. He'd like he'd put up a fight. Do you know what mm. I mean? He wasn't the best fighter in the world, but he was like, yeah, yeah. He, That's yeah. like an attribute you can't really. Yeah, you're born with it or you're not. Like yeah. true gameness, right? Yeah, yeah. But he had he had these pictures because of course we didn't have cameras and stuff back then. So he had these pictures developed where he'd been on some. Uh, I think it was like a what was it called? Ultimate Combat, uh, one of those mm. early shows. And I was like, wow, is this legal? And he was like. Oh, nobody stopped us. <laughs> I said, "Do you get money for it?" I'm like, yeah. I'm like, great. I could really use some money. Can you get me a fight? So I ended up fighting. Uh, ended up fighting in uh, County Durham somewhere on one of the. It was before uh, you know Peter McQueen's Total Combat. Yes. It was called Goshen Ryu Fighting Championships before that, you know. And it was there. Uh, it was like I didn't have a. I didn't know where. I, if anybody had my skill level, then you are now. Why? Why are you even thinking about fighting here? You need to stay in the gym for a little bit longer. Yeah. But I. Uh, I, yeah, so I went, I went there to this show, and it was in like a working man's club back when you could smoke in working men's clubs. Yeah, so it was like um, you're like passing through the yeah, fog. Yeah, you had to push your way through the crowd, you know, because you know how you see the Gracies coming out, they did the Gracie train and all this sort of stuff, and I thought, oh, it's this cool camaraderie kind of thing. I said, no, that's just how you get through crowds in Brazil, <laughs> so that you don't lose your friends, that you put your hands on the shoulder, yeah. so you know somebody gets pulled away from you, and you can plow through a crowd yeah you know, so that's what that was all about yeah <laughs> really? so yeah I, did not know that. Uh, I thought it was just like a gimmick you know yeah. but uh, yeah it was uh yeah 
that's that's how they do i love the um, idea that they just like this is how we go in and then everyone's like this is the coolest thing ever and they're like oh yeah. this is just what we used it's to it's just how you get through a crowd because there was no channels left yeah. you know in the in those early setups so it stops it stops people from standing on the athlete's foot when mm. they're in, when they're in their bare in their bare feet mm. so I, I went there like this having to push my way through the crowd and getting beer spilled on me and guys cigarettes just uh making this haze just at head height so you get up there and you've got this cloud of smoke yeah and uh, i'd never been in a boxing ring before and i'd seen this video of a boxer fall over between the ropes like and then make like a fool of himself and i was just terrified and i thought like oh no getting into the ring or? getting into yeah, the ring yeah, yeah he got in the ring and he tripped over the ropes twice and i yeah. thought like, oh god this is gonna be me i got so i just sat and watched how everybody got in, <laughs> in the ropes because i'd never been in a ring before you know yeah. so i'm like right okay so you you step through you know, go underneath, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pry the ropes apart and duck underneath. You know? So I was really, really focused on this going out thing. Just don't fall over, don't fall over. And I got in the ring and big Colin Sexton, you know, turns to me and goes, are you ready? And I was like, oh, fuck, no, I'm not ready at all. I was just thinking about not falling over. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I, I, uh, so I had my first fight and like I, I, I got boxed all over and they managed to take the guy down and control him on the floor. And you So know. you've been doing some grappling training at that yeah, point? Yeah, well, we'd, we'd been, we were just learning off videos, essentially. A, really? lot, a, a lot of it was just, yeah, just watching what guys were doing and then copying and then we'd had some instruction from uh, John and Lee at the Advanced Fighting Center, but really we were just completely winging it and then just, you know, trying to figure out what an arm lock was from from seeing a, like, grainy uh, tape-traded yeah. VHS um, was it Lars Bessand? Do you remember Lars Bessand from uh, uh, from the Netherlands? Yeah, he he used to send us all tapes, so we used to just buy them, and then we'd all get one each, and then and then swap them around. Mm. So yeah, but it was, I mean, it was really good fun. But yeah, how'd so that I, first fight go? Um, I thought I'd won, and then they raised the other guy's hand, and then I saw the judge. Right, a couple of, he, he was at the gym a couple of weeks later. Uh, or this uh, sometime later anyway he says oh yeah you know that fight he goes you actually won that one I saw the video back and then I realized you won I was like well why didn't you give it to me at the time he said well the table was underneath the ring so as soon as it went on the floor uh, we didn't know anything. we didn't know what happened so like, you know you, you got you got punched a few times so we gave it to the other guy I'm like, ah, well thanks do you not think maybe you might have mentioned like I can't see can we sit a bit higher up or something well, anyway that's yeah so but those early days, the, the the judges must have not even really had any idea that grappling was going to be this big, useful thing. I mean, I guess I guess you do. It's like way past UFC one. So it was you know, past UFC one, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, understanding any sort of nuance and who were the judges? Exactly, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know. You know, it was all just it it, it was all just kind of potluck, you know. Mm. But like, yeah, I remember those shows. Like the medic, he had a the well, the doctor, he had like a high vis jacket with doctor written on the back in pen <laughs> and like a stars and stripes bandana and he's sitting on the desk here somebody gets choked out cold i think it's like, yeah it must be ian freeman comes over and goes get in the ring do your job somebody is unconscious and he goes oh and he gets up and wanders into the ring and kind of nudges the guy <laughs> and goes are you okay mate <laughs> Like, Ian Freeman just goes fuck off and puts him in the recovery position. You know, gets his cup shield out. He's like, well, I thought, yeah, yeah, doctor written on the back of a. It's not that's a good start. A, uh, suggests you're not really a doctor, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was the early days. So Where when did you first head out to Brazil? Well, this was because I had a couple of fights, and then I realized I <clears> didn't know anything. I knew a little bit about some things, and I realized I needed a base. Um, and at the time, it appeared that base 
was Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Mm. Now people would argue, you know, that so oh, what you Re- want is an athletic Brazilian yeah. wrestling, wrestling, you yeah. know. Generally speaking, but you know, at, at the time, this was a good option for me. I just had a friend by chance, a Brazilian guy that I knew from the punk scene, and, uh, and I said, "Hey, man, are you from Brazil? I've started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu." He's like, "Oh yeah, cool. I'm a blue belt." I was like, "Oh wow, you know, that's awesome!" Because a blue belt at the time was a really big Massive, deal. Yeah. You know, it's still a big deal, actually. I shouldn't say this as if, you no, know, but it was rare. That, what I mean, I mean it, we can say this without uh, diminishing the achievement of getting a blue belt, but it, it's just a statistically i mean the first competition i ever did they didn't even um they didn't even classify that it was a white belt division mm. it was just a division because there were so few blue belts yeah. it was basically a white belt division and one blue belt shows up for the absolute and when i say i used to say many years ago i used to say it was like a black belt walking in today yeah it's not even like a black belt walking in it would be like a red belt walking into a room it was so rare at that point. Yeah, uh, so true. it's not necessarily that that they were any better. It was just that there were so few blue belts that that was akin to at, at the very least a couple of degrees on a black belt today. Mm. Well, that's actually I've missed I missed a little bit of the story because Dave Elliott had been uh, working in London and he'd been trained by Mark Walder. Mm. So when Dave Elliott came back to town, that was a revelation. It was like it was like. Hicks and Gracie was here, you know. Mm. I mean, the things I used a blue belt at the time, which was special at the time, but he wasn't just any blue belt, Dave. Dave was really special, amazingly talented guard player. Like his guard, I remember like even then as a blue belt, his guard was like a black belt's guard, Mm. you know. Like he just crushed your shoulders. He had this amazing squeeze between his legs that's like, you know, it's a a thing that you don't really cultivate from other sports. It's not Mm. really, you know, I mean, you can- internal pressure on the legs, yeah. Like even like squatting and and all the sort of like basic strength builders don't really quite accomplish this precise thing. Dave just seemed to have it. Oh, what? Yeah, pole dancing. (laughs) <laughs> it's true man yeah. those, well, women, would, those women could hold themselves on a pole with just their legs that's some serious that's where we need to recruit from them, absolutely 100% but yeah I mean maybe like maybe equestrian sports actually yeah, and maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you're like right. more across no you're 100% right like that that internal pressure that we get with the legs in jiu-jitsu like of a good guard player or a good half guard player I mean I've heard yeah. I've never rolled with him but I've heard stories of Eddie Bravo rolling and all everyone ever says is his lockdown, his leg pressure is so tight. Uh, and you're right, there's not very many sports out there um, that, 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 that develop that strength. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, Dave was like this, but then I, I, I didn't have very much going on and I got the opportunity to go to Brazil. You know, and then I never managed to get back together with Dave because when I, when I came back, he was working in London again and you know, then I was just doing MMA. I wasn't training the gear anymore. You know, but Dave, Dave was a very special, very influential mm. uh, player Absolutely, in the Northeast. Yeah. He's, he's someone I definitely like to have on the podcast in the future. Yeah, I'm sure he's got some, some really good stories. But yeah, my, my Brazilian friend, Victor, he, um, he said, oh yeah, so I, I'm a blue belt with Crezio de Souza. It was, it was like, all right, cool. Who's Crezio? You know, I said, oh yeah, trained by Carlson Gracie. He's a Carlson Gracie black belt. He fought Dan Henderson. I said, fuck, he fought wow. Dan Henderson. I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing. This is, the, this is the guy. I've got to meet him. And he came walking down the road. It just so happened that he had Victor had invited him over. He came walking down the road and he's tiny. He was like a featherweight. And I'm looking, I'm, I, said, I thought you said he fought Dan Henderson. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He showed me the video. Fucking double leg Dan Henderson, put him down, got the mount oh, on him. Yeah. Uh, it was this controversial fight, actually. It's an interesting uh, story, this, because it was Dan Henderson's first MMA fight, you know, back when they were raw. You remember Real American Wrestling? Yeah. Um, and uh, against the Brazilian team. And, uh, and like, Crezio had bulked up 
to like 80 kilos or something like this. And then Dan Henderson was obviously coming down and cutting mm. weight, you know. So, but it was his first fight and it was Quesu's last fight. And, uh, and Quesu double legs and gets the mount and then gets reversed off. You know, Dan Henderson throws down some punches and then waves it off. Mm. You know. So, like, uh, like very upfront about this one. He's just like, look, I'm not saying I won. I'm not even saying I was going to win. Could have lost, but I didn't lose. Mm. So I, I would like a rematch. Dan Henderson said, yeah, cool, yeah, fair enough, yeah, early stoppage, we'll have a rematch. He's training for the rematch. One of his students reaches up from underneath the mountain in panic, sticks his thumb in his eye, and goes blind. No. So like, ah, that's it. So, of course, he never get, uh, he didn't get the fight in pride. They, all of his teammates, of course, they all, all went off to pride, mm. and that was his opportunity shot because he could never pass a medical again. Oh. It was a real, real shame, you know. But, yeah, he was... Uh, like a, a special fighter so he'd, he'd wrestled for brazil as well um so the kind of the jujitsu that i learned was like m more what you would see now in like a adcc style it would so when i when i actually came back and i started to see guys playing a a more conventional kind of like open guard yeah, yeah. Well, i saw i saw the first time i ever saw a double guard pull i was at the mundials i was like the fuck was that like I mean, isn't... to be fair, still to this day, when I say double, <laughs> double guard pull, I think that's pretty, that's pretty bad. When you see a double guard pull and then they both stay on their ass, yeah, that yeah. does not look good. Yeah. Ah, it's all. I've, I've reviewed my opinions about guard pull. And it's like it's all in the game. It's just yeah, yeah. But it's you know it's a, it's an example of the sport splitting. Where like what I was really attracted because my my intention with training jujitsu was specifically to get a base for MMA. Mm. I wanted to build to understand how to compete in a less injurious sport, you know? And so like the, um, like the Guerzo style where it was geared towards uh, mixed martial arts competition, mm. he, had a, he had a nice phrase. What did he say again? He said like, in the academy, we learn and practice the jujitsu. On the competition mats, we test the jujitsu. In the ring, we prove the jujitsu. Mm. I thought, oh, that's, that's a, a powerful statement. Yeah. yeah, and I think at that stage, even though we'd had UFC one two three, like it was already established. I feel like jujitsu, even to this day, I feel like jujitsu still is proving itself at the highest level. You know, even when um, some and and it, and it's interesting because I don't feel like any other sport that comprises mixed martial arts feels that way. But when a jujitsu guy wins a UFC belt or the jujitsu guy gets a big submission victory. I feel like they're still representing jiu-jitsu. Yeah, it, it is nice when you see like, you know, Jacare or Damian Maia or Gilbert Burns now is probably the best example of a guy who's a legit gi black belt, yeah. uh, a, a world-class uh, gi black belt uh, producing results in, in MMA. It's very nice to see. You know, but it's this this thing with like uh, saying, oh, jiu-jitsu doesn't work anymore. Oh, it's, it's, of course it's bullshit. No know? one really says that, right? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's more of a marketing thing. We say, oh, I'm, I come from Sambo, so I'm going to talk shit about jiu-jitsu, get a headline or something like this. You know, but what it is true is that jiu-jitsu is not the best base. You know, statistically speaking, it's not sure. the best base to produce uh, results in Modern MMA. In, in yeah. modern MMA. You know, and part of it is that just the way that the sport has evolved down the sport lines lends itself to different positions that either don't exist or don't function the same way once you introduce punches. Yeah. You know. But the, it's the, the athletic qualities that it, that it produces, the pacing that it produces, you know, doesn't lend itself the way that wrestling does. Yeah. 
but everyone, you know, everybody's training jujitsu. Well, they might, they, they, they don't, training. they don't have to even call it jujitsu. They're just doing submission grappling. You know? Yeah. But you know, it, it's, it's it, of course they're doing jujitsu. Yeah. Yeah. Of course they are. Yeah. So it's, of course, yeah, it's really, really hard to submit somebody. You know, in in five minute rounds where like it might take you like two or three minutes to get the guy down. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, of course, yeah. But why aren't people getting submitted all the time? Because everybody trains jujitsu. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But the only thing that you can't say is, yeah, it's possibly true that as a, as an athletic base, jujitsu is not necessarily the best crossover. But you must have jujitsu. You must train jujitsu. Well, I feel like jujitsu out of all of the martial arts um, that, that make up MMA has arguably the worst culture of physical conditioning. Mm. Uh, in, in judo, it's really, really high. In wrestling, it's probably the highest of all of them. But even in boxing, conditioning, road work, bag work, you know, skipping, there's a real culture. Whereas in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I think it comes down to the, I think it comes down to the marketing of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu when it first came out. The idea that the whole sport was sold on the smaller guy can beat the bigger guy. Why would we be in the gym working out? Even though they all did. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to this argument. But I'll give you an example. I overheard a couple of guys in the bathroom after a, a, a juju. I forget what it was. It was some like like regional tournament, you know. And one of the guys says to his teammates, "Oh, how did you, how did you do today?" He said, "Ah, oh, yeah, I just I, I lost because I wasn't in shape. The guy wasn't better than me, but I, I just yeah, I just hadn't trained. You know, I wasn't in shape." And I thought, if I heard one of my guys say that, I would slap him around the ear. Mm-hmm. Like, said, man, if you if you said the opposite and said, look. I came in in real good shape. I made the weight. My diet was right. I trained as hard as I could train. And that guy was just technically better than me. It's okay. Well done. There's nothing else you could have done. But you knew when the tournament was. This was completely under your control. You knew when the tournament was. You could have got in shape. You know, for how many, like, how many rounds you have to do an average tournament? What? Two, three, four? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Max five or six matches. You're like, who can't get in shape for that? So this was unforgivable to me. If anybody, if any one of my athletes said that, I would just slap them around the ear. Mm. But I mean, obviously, I wouldn't really. I'm just saying that metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So you you meet up with uh, this jujitsu guy, and then this is in the UK or this is in Brazil? I met him. I met him in uh, in the UK. He just happened to be visiting Newcastle. It was just a pure fluke. It was just a just a pure, a pure chance, you know. So I said the same shit they probably heard all the time, saying like, "Oh, it's my dream to be a fighter, and I want to come to Brazil and do it." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, come and train, come and train." You know, so I just went, mm. packed my. I didn't have anything at all here. I packed my bags. You know, all of my possessions fit into a a, a rucksack. Mm. You know, that was it. Which was nice at the time, you know, like I, I wouldn't feel proud saying this now, you know, but at the time it felt very romantic that I could just up and go. Yeah. And so I went there, went to, went to train with Crasio and uh, man, what a revelation it was. Was that just, in Rio? It was actually, it was in Sao Paulo Sao to Paulo, begin yeah. with. So mm-hmm. I spent a few months in Sao Paulo and then he took me back to his hometown of Petropolis for, for some different training there. And uh, so Petropolis is about... Uh, about an hour or so from in the from mountains? Rio City. It's up in the mountains, yeah. So it's, there's Petropolis, then Teresopolis, yeah. and yeah. Um, Beautiful so areas. Gorgeous, mm. gorgeous. But the, the, no distractions. Yeah. You know, like one of the reasons why I didn't want to be in Rio de Janeiro is because, you know, when you're early 20s, there's, there's beaches and nightclubs and all yeah. this sort of stuff. And I thought, nah, I'm going to stay disciplined. So I, I was I was there up in... Uh, uh, up in... Up in Petropolis. It's where Hilo Gracie... Uh, uh, has his uh, or had his family yeah. uh, family home. You know. So the the story with Crazo, 
Grezio was a, uh, a black belt from Carson, and his father was a black belt from Elio. So, yeah, his, wow. his father's story is amazing. You want to you hear about his father? Absolutely. His father's Grezio Chavez, Grezio Senior, Grezão. Yeah. And, uh, and he was an orphan. He, you know, he, he was like, when you say like a street kid, I mean, literally the street kid, you know, like he, he was just surviving on the help of passersby. And when he became a young man, he had the opportunity to join the Brazilian army. Or the, was it the army or the navy? I forget. Yeah. So he goes there and they end up going, oh, he's a tough athletic kid. Um, we'll get him boxing for the regiment. So he, so he boxed. And then he was part of the gymnastics team. This was a big deal at this, at this period of time in the 60s that they had a, a gymnastics team. And he had to do this display where there was a, uh, how, do you, how do you explain it? You know, like almost like a, like a cheerleading style, like mm. pyramids and things like this, mm-hmm. except being the Brazilian army, they were like throwing knives. So he had, to, he had to stand like to attention while knives threw and landed around him. So he had to demonstrate, you know, like this like physical control with yeah. the gymnastic part and the, the knives falling around him. And Helio Gracie, the, the military had brought him in to like come and pick athletes. You know, because most of Helios guys were like high-ranking military officials, lawyers, doctors, this kind of thing. Very well-connected guys. Yeah, but they're not. These are not the guys who go on the street and pick fights. Yeah. You know? So you think, all right, I need some tough guys. You know, I'll get them from the army. So the Brazilian army invited him, and he looked and he said, like, this guy's a great athlete, and he's got balls of solid rock. Give me him. And wow. he, he trained him with the, on the proviso that he would go and then challenge people. So they put they direct the ring in the town square, and he would get up there like you know. I don't know, 150 pounds worth through and say, I'll fight any man. You know, dead, brave, brave guy. You know, and you think like, wow. well, now we know you get in the ring and you've got this preparation stuff. But imagine back then, people didn't really know. You didn't really, um, imagine the courage. Yeah. You know, but obviously, tough life made him, made him hard. And, uh, and so, Grezio had grown up just training jiu-jitsu from, you know, basically out and up, he's into a gi. Mm. And, uh, and his father, when he gets to 18 years old, says, okay, You've come as far as you can in this in the city. Go to Rio, find the Gracies. And so this was at the time when you know the uh, like before Baja and Carlson was was split. They just had separate nights. Just so happened, yeah, same Gracie, gym. Yeah, yeah, well done. So, but you've talked about the story before on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. There's no need to go over it again. Gracie just happened to turn up on Carlson's night. Mm. Carlson said, "Cool, you're my guy." You know, and so became part of the Carlson team. Then obviously the family kind of rick happened, so Sunday dinners must have been a bit tense at, yeah. uh, at Crazio's house with the, the Helio black belt and the, and the Carlson black belt. Yeah. But he, basically what, what Crazio had done, he'd, he'd been qualified as a black belt through his father. And in his town at the time, was a black belt. Then he gets there to Carlson's gym with all of the, the characters that everybody knows. Wait, so his dad had already graded him his to black belt? Graded him to black belt. Uh, at 18? Yes. yes. Yeah. But when he got there, of course, he's training with all these different people, you know, and he said like, so he goes there and, uh, and Carson says, okay, I'll pass the guard at this little, uh, this, this little purple belt here. Should be no problem for you. And he goes there, he's fucking trying to pass the guard, trying to pass the guard. He can't pass the guard. He's driving him nuts, you know, and at the end of the session comes, he hasn't passed the guard once and he goes there and he takes off his black belt and he says, Carson, I don't deserve this. Please give it back to me when you feel like the time's right. Mm. And he went and put on a blue belt. And then he tells the story. He tells the story at seminars. It's real good. So I'm going to blow his, uh, blow his good story for him now. And he says, guess who the purple belt was? It was fucking Ricardo De La Hiva. He said, if I'd known, I would have just kept the black belt. Nobody passes guard. So yeah. So yeah, that was the, that was the story. So then he, re, he re-qualified as a black wow. belt. And yeah. But yeah. Very, 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 very interesting guy. That's, a, that's an arse whooping when you're a black belt and you don't demote yourself to brown 
or purple is it, all the must, way down the ladder to blue belt it must have been a, it must have been a rough one yeah. Yeah. but he taught me a lot of things about the Carlson team that were, were very very interesting about the you know about the methodology and about about Carlson himself and a lot of the time like I mean I remember some techniques guys who taught me and stuff like that but really like it was the these bits of information that he would communicate what I needed to know via what Carlson told him that he needed to know mm. so he told me he told me some some real good stories um, one day, because because uh, he was still there with the with the blue belt, and Carson arranged this gym like a sports team. There was only one athlete would go, so they used to say the real competition is the Saturday before in the That's gym, right. and then the qualifier gets to go there. You know? So for a long time he couldn't reachieve the black belt because Delhaver was in his spot. Mm. You know? So he was devastated because he never got to fight Holly Grace. He always wanted to, wanted to get to go with him, but then the opportunity went to uh, uh, went to. Uh, because he was in the senior spot mm. so anyway when he moves up to purple belt you know it's because there was a gap in the team so uh Carson comes to Creswell and says like okay I got some good news and some bad news you go you're gonna fight as a purple belt next week he said oh, amazing thank you he said bad news is you're gonna go up a weight and your first match is Hensel Gracie oh wow <laughs> <laughs> he's like right so he's oh man Christ right I need to train I need to train hard this is Henzo Gracie is Henzo, yeah. belt. Henzo went back when they were the first uh, Chris Owen, Henzo fought twice and I think it was both a purple belt perhaps wow. so the, the first fight at least was definitely a purple belt it's so mad to think of these guys like these legendary figures as being purple belts ever right yeah yeah but again you know there wasn't there wasn't as many black belts it was still like you know, like I mean even now actually you know the purple belt divisions are some prestige divisions well I imagine that um, there was probably less almost certainly definitely at the time there would be way less black belts in Brazil back then than there are in the UK now yeah, yeah. so yeah the, the, this, this would have been like the UK maybe five years ago brown and black belts were amalgamated in competition yeah. you know like people think like people won't do it now because you think like you your black belt doesn't want to lose to a brown belt but they're the same division it's, you know like and they knew this in Brazil yeah. back then so like it's 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 sort of yeah, you just put them together it's the same level it's fine yeah. but yeah so he's, he's gonna fight he's gonna fight Hansel Gracie next week as a purple belt so, I need to train I need to train extra hard so no Carlson says, no, you don't. You're like, Creswell was like an overtrainer because he had the wrestling mentality. He would just, you know, go and run his legs off. You know, mm. he'd be doing hills, he'd be doing sprints on the beach. And Carlson would go, no, man, just relax. Save some energy for training later. But he was like a, an, an addict of training. So instead, what Carlson does is say, come with me, different lesson today. And he takes him to the cockfights. You know, like Carlson, like, obviously, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not acceptable now. Yeah. You know, but Carlson loved the cockfights. Yes. And he said, he takes him to see this match and this this bird is being picked apart, you know, it's just, but it just refuses, refuses to give up, you know, and then finally, this bird gets back up and kills its opponent. Mm. It's probably half dead, you know, but it's killed its opponent now, you know, because it just outright refused to give up. And Carson says to Grezzo, if you can muster 50% of the courage that this fighting cock has, you beat anybody. And that was the lesson for the day. And this wow. like was just incredibly powerful for him. You know, obviously now cockfighting is not an acceptable sport. Even in Brazil. You know the you know the the Carson's logo? You yes. know the story of this? Yes. Where it, it was a it was a That's it, right. It, it was a fighting cock. Yeah. And this is the one that Carson liked. But it was was it Arbentason, the the brand said, No, no, we can't we can't show cockfighting as part mm. of our thing we'll, we'll make it a we'll make it a bulldog mm. probably Carson didn't like the bulldog because in his later years he took on kind of the appearance of 
people mm. would say he looked like a bulldog and he didn't like it. You know, so yeah, he didn't he didn't like that logo. He he always wanted to return to being the the fighting cock, but that was which know. is quite funny because like uh, being a bulldog in the UK is considered quite uh, complimentary. Like you're big, you're tough, you're yeah. strong. Yeah. But no, yeah, I have heard that he was he was big into the fighting cocks. Yeah, this yeah, but like the, this this had a had a big impact on Creswell. Mm. You know, so he used to tell me all these little stories, you know, about Carlson, but uh, like in a way to communicate to me what I needed to know. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that we, um, I think people maybe don't appreciate as much they think when they think of their lineage, they think that it's only techniques that are being passed down. But actually a lot of the time, the thing that's being passed down the most is the mentality and the mindset, the stories and the uh, culture of an individual in a gym more so than the, the techniques a lot of the time. This is, this is what seems to, to, to be with, with Carlson in particular. You know, that like, nobody talks about Carlson did this technique, that technique. You know, like, everybody no. just talks about things that he did, things that he said, the attitude that he had. You know? yeah. And sometimes you'll see, like, you know, there's a picture of him with, uh, with Valij Ishmael. Mm. And Valij is in his gi and he must have been like, bashed after a, after a tough fight. And Carlson's stroking his hair like he's his son. Mm. You know, like, like, like the kind of like affection of a father and son. You know? So I, I've asked Chris, I said, like, what, what was it that was special about, about Carlson then? You know, cause you never tell me, oh, he did his arm lock this way. Yes. He do his choke this way. You know, he said, no, he said, like, Carlson had great eyes. So if Carlson was in your corner and he told you what to do, if you did it, you won. Simple as that. Mm. 100% of the time. If you followed his orders, he could see what it took to win this fight. You know, mm. which is like, that's another aspect of coaching skill that like you've either got or you haven't. Mm. You know, there's loads of people that can like, you know, take, take footage of fights and break things down. You know, loads of people better than me. You know, and I look and I think like, oh Christ, I watched that fight and I didn't even realize that. That's really cool. Well done. You know, but when you watch it in slow motion from the camera angle, and you can play it back 10 times. It's not that there's no skill to it, but it's a very different skill to doing it in real time. You know, and this thing can pause like, it yeah. and you can have a look at where the hand position is. And when you know what happened, mm. when you know what you know happened, it's much, much easier to, to work back. When you're trying to see into the future about mm. all the possible things that could happen, that's where it takes a, a real good coach to tell you what to do in between rounds. Like I, I've had some real, I've had some real shit ones and some really good ones. And you just the exact right thing to say. Like my coach, Alan Orr, he was wonderful at this. You know, he would give me just the right amount of information, just the right thing. And if I did what Alan said, I would win the fight. If I, if I didn't, I lost. You know. mm. But like, it was, it was simple things. You know, and sometimes I could be getting overwhelmed by information or I'd be getting sort of made to feel negative by, by some people. I had some terrible cornermen. I had one guy, like he got, he got some, our main coach couldn't come. So he got some adrenaline. So he shortly said, okay, you take Literally the Literally a, a, a the, syringe of adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. But like he didn't know to cut it with the Vaseline. So like he came, he came in after, in between rounds and whacked neat adrenaline on my eye. And I was like, what? fucking hell. So I couldn't see. And then like so I'm fighting the whole fight protecting this cut that didn't fucking exist. I had a graze. And yeah. stuck fucking heat adrenaline on. So I got back to the I got back to the dress room afterwards and said, right, we're going to see the doctor get this stitched on. He's like, no, no, there's no cut there. I said, like, what the fuck did you blind me with adrenaline <laughs> for? And he said, oh, I just wanted to see if it worked. Is adrenaline right. meant to like um reduce the blood then? It's a um it's what's a, a vaso, he, he, vasoconstrictor. Vasoconstrictor, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so, but you, you don't put it on neat. You cut it with the Vaseline. Actually, you don't use adrenaline anymore. Because uh, a very small percentage of people have an allergic reaction. Mm. You know, so there's another product. Was which that quite a common thing, thing that, you, that people would use then? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like you'd have to be a, a pro boxing coach to get it. Okay. You know, but, you know, we, we just we didn't get things the yeah, right sure. way, you know, you know, as you do. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't cheating. It was just that we didn't have the license yeah. to, to get the stuff. But got it anyway. Um, but yeah, so you don't use adrenaline anymore, but it's, it's essentially a similar substance that yeah. doesn't have the risk attached. Um, really interesting point that you just made me think of, which is these coaches that have so much influence over the outcome of the fight in which they say, do this, and if you do this, you win. And if you don't do this, you lose. And, and that, like that's the reality. And it kind of makes you start to wonder how much success of the average fighter is due to the individual and how much is due to the coach? Uh, this, it's very, very hard to, it's very hard to, to pin those things yeah. down. And then you've got to further, you know, like, um, I think you've had this discussion with somebody before on the podcast, what is more important, a good coach or good training partners? Yeah. Or it can be the, you know, it's part of the, part of the same equation. Very, very hard to know. It's, it's difficult to say. Um, I feel like some, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like some people need a coach more than other people, and there can be a really big difference between mm. those two. Like, I, I love to see it when, you know, like the coaches that play the fire like a PlayStation yeah. game. Move left, move right, throw the jab, do, 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 do. And, and like when you see it done well, it's beautiful. Thing like, wow, this guy is like, like a machine, you know, like the, like the, like the Hugh Jackman film of the... Uh, know, real the, still. Yeah, like this kind of thing. You know, like there's, there's a beautiful synthesis going on. I think it's marvelous. Mm. Me personally, I'm the other way. Like if I'm seeing nothing, it's going good. Mm. Even when things are precarious, you know, the guy's in a niche inverted triangle position or something like that. If I'm sitting there seeing nothing, I say, oh, that's cool. Because we worked on this last week. Yeah. And I just say, son, you know what to do. No, yeah. might like only open my mouth to say he's doing this. There's something that you can't see. You know, but I'm not trying to give him instructions on what to do. And it works for some guys, and it works for some coaches. If it doesn't work for me, but if you see me shouting, shit's gone wrong because I know mm. the guy doesn't know what to do. You know? Mm. So I, I, me personally, I, I'm like I'm like a, a, a quiet coach, mm. and it works for some people. And it doesn't work for others. But I used to hear it when guys would get me beforehand. You know, and they'd be like trying to slap my face and go, "It's your fight. It's your fight." And I go. Yes, I know it's my fight. That's a meaningless statement. Is, like, you don't need to wind me up. I'm going to hit him. It's all right. Yeah. You can see this too with, like, you know, guys in weigh-ins and stuff like that when they give it, like, yeah. push and pull yeah. and girl and all that. Like, We're fighting tomorrow. It's like, it's, it's all right. You know, like, I'm like, you don't have to pick a fight with me. I've, I've already, I've signed it. I've been getting ready for it and everything. Like, that's why I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm di- don't worry. I'm definitely going to hit you tomorrow. You know, like, I'm, uh, uh, so, but I, I guess some, some guys, some guys thrive on this. Some That's guys what you said it. about the coaching, which is like uh, the coaching is know whether knowing whether someone needs to be hyped up or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, or more or less aroused. Is the uh, <laughs> optimum state of arousal? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, like going to corners and saying, "How aroused are you?" From <laughs> I love this terminology. Yeah. Do I need to arouse you even more? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, back to uh, back to Brazil. So you're oh, yeah. with uh, Cres- Cresso? Cresso. Cresso. And uh, so so you, you're out in Brazil, you're in Sao Paulo? I was in Sao Paulo for about three months. 
and then and then I went then, to oh, yeah, went to Petropolis. How long how long were you over in Brazil for? So I just did the like the six months on, six months off thing. And uh for how, like for, for I, did, I only did it for a couple of years. You know, but it felt like a long time. You know, like, it is a long know, time. It, that's that's a year with uh, over two that's a year of time spent in Brazil over two years. In in, t- in terms of like how condensed the training was, I mean I was hitting three and four a day. You know. Wow. So I was like I mean I was totally overtrained. I was you know, I was I was doing sleeping 11 hours and then all I would do is eat train eat train then Sunday would come and I would just be I would, I would just be goosed you know but and like it, it did help me to advance rapidly but kind of push my body a little bit too hard and how, how was that experience out there in Brazil oh it was it was wonderful um the, just just having a it made me feel really special at the mm. time you know like which is like now it's 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 not that I mean it's not that it's not a big deal but it's not uncommon yeah. But at the time, like it made me feel really special, and I, you know, I was learning how to speak Portuguese and having a different experience of life, you know, and, and it, it was so far removed from from how I'd lived before. Mm. You know. I think like and nobody, nobody else around me from my sort of social class was was doing this, you know. So I I came back, you know, and uh, it was a bit a bit sad to get back, and then I had problems getting housed. There'd been mm. a administrative error. Um, that it meant that I'd left with some debts um, that I, I thought I was all paid up on the on the council flat, and so I came back and I, um, I had debts, but I couldn't clear the debts because I couldn't get a job, and I couldn't get a job because I didn't have an address, and mm. I was in the homelessness cycle straight away. Wow! So th- this was pretty unfortunate. So I ended up in like kind of like in like a halfway house, mm. and there, uh, and not not to be judgmental to anybody, but everybody else there just got out of prison. A lot of them had substance abuse problems, and I was looking around, thinking like, "Fuck, how did I end up here?" You know, like all I was trying to do was trying to be an elite athlete, and I've ended up, I'm in the same position as uh, as if I I just got out of jail. And it's not, I'm not being judgmental to anybody yeah, sure. who's who's been through the prison system, but you know, I felt like, man, this is this is a little bit frightening. I hadn't anticipated this, and just look, just by virtue of being part of a gym. People said, no, nah, don't sleep there. You can sleep on my couch. My coach said, you can sleep in the gym if you need to. You know, but every day somebody would take me home until I could pull enough money together to get a deposit and uh, and move on like this. But yeah, yeah, it put, put, put me to homelessness. Wow. But of course, the next thing that I did was save up enough money, go back go and do it back. all again. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it was that great. It was so good to be, it was so good to be there. Yeah. But yeah, but I had no success at all in Brazil uh, as an athlete. Were you uh, competing much over there? I was... T- made the mistake of competing on big tournaments because mm. um, I, I wanted so much to win something prestigious. So I, I was competing in the Mundials. You didn't have to qualify for the Mundials as a foreigner then, so I could go straight in. You know, and, uh, at, uh, you know, the Rio State Open or whatever it was. Did and, you get your blue belt out there? Uh, I had my blue belt from, from Dave Elliott. Um, oh, wow. But um, So you were training with Dave when you were over here? Yeah, I just started, like, a short, short time. I don't know how many, a matter of months. I can't. I really can't remember now. My yeah, memory yeah. is not. My it's a long time ago. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so I had a blue belt, but it wasn't really. You had it before cool. you went over to Brazil. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Which was, uh, it would have been better if I'd gone as a white belt. Sure. Because you know that I, I got a, I got it put on me mm, hard, mm. and um, but in a way, there's an advantage to that as well, which is when there's a <laughs> when there's a target on your back, you you got to step up to that, right? It, it did. It did. The, like the training environment was pretty ruthless. There was not. Uh, there was not a, a a great deal of camaraderie. Mm. You know, they um they, they wanted to smash the gringo. 
You know? So, like, I got a very excellent reception from the coaches mm. um, who were very, very generous with the time. Some of the teammates just wanted to smash me. And then there was a handful who were beautiful to me. You know, like, I, like there's a, a guy, he was a brown belt at the time, obviously black belt now, Shanino Piraya. Like, what a great guy. We just, you know, be so uh, generous with it, with his time and his mm. hospitality. And uh, I had a guy, Pedro Galvan. Um, Pedro was just like a super talented guy, but it was just his hobby. You know, like, he's um, he's black belt now, but he was a pearl belt for about 10 years. But he was so talented. He was just like, he had one, you know, like, the, like, uh, like knee and, knee and, uh, sleeve sweep. Yeah, you, know, you threaten the armbar and then just and then just flip the guy. I don't know the names. Do you know what? I know the names for everything in wrestling because I learned from an American. You know, like, mm. and I know none of the names for any jujitsu techniques at all. You know, I mean, I'm pretty yeah. bad with that to be honest. Yeah, I'm trying I mean, to get better now. Commentary. The Brazilian method is like I say. Oh, what's this technique called? You know that one. Yeah, and then I go. Okay, right. Uh, overhook, underhook. What's how do you say that? They go esgrima, pommel. Mm. I'm like, yeah, but like pommeling to get an overhook or an underhook. It's all the same. Like mm. it's, it's a weird language, Portuguese, and mm. that like you know it's got this really complex conjugation, and then like opposite the verbiage, you know, where we're like we've got such a rich language in English that we're just we're just spoiled for synonyms. Yes, yeah. You know, we're like you think like how have you not got a word for overhook or underhook? That just to me that was nuts. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I lost the thread of what I was saying again. What am I on about? That's all right. Uh, we were talking about uh, we're just talking about you training Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, nah, but it it. I was there for a very short period of time, but it was so influential mm. to to my life. You know, the, it just made me change my perspective on on absolutely everything. And it was, uh, you know, and I had I had access to this history of jujitsu. I became like 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 rich in the history of jujitsu because mm. I was so close to the source. I was, oh, I was telling you about Crazy's uh, fight with Henzo. Got sidetracked mm, again. Mm. We never got to the actual fight. Oh yeah. You know, this, this is just a funny story, but uh, like Crazy said, like he got to the side of the mat and. Uh, and Henzo's walking up and down, stalking, like looking at him like Apollo Creed, going, I want you, I want you, I'm gonna smash you. You know, like in the in the matches before, the he's going, like, you better win this fight, because I'm gonna get you in the next round. I'm gonna make a mess of you. Da, da, da. He's giving him the whole thing. You know? I feel like Henzo was always big into that psychological. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then Crazy uh, goes in there to have a great fight, and Crazy wins. Crazy wins? He, he won the fight, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said, and, and Henzo goes, wow, that was a great fight, man. Come on, let's get a beer. Yeah. And starts chatting with him, you know, being a body to him, you know. And then a few months later, they meet again, you know. And Henzo's walking up and down going, I want you. I'm going to smash you. I'm going to do it. They said, well, you've already done this trick once. It doesn't work once you've asked me to go for a beer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, but yeah, funny guy. Yeah. With, with that sort of stuff, because we do see it occasionally with some athletes in MMA or in jiu-jitsu, that intensity, do you think that's more... If I'm doing it, do you think that's to get in your head or to get help me get where I need to be in my head? It really depends on the individual. Yeah, I think it could be it could be some and some, it could be one or the other. It just depends on the individual, and it works on some people and doesn't. It works for some people and not on, and works on some people mm. and not on others. Yeah, I, mean, I, ne I never got anything out of trying to psych somebody else out mm. and i never ever got psyched out like i quite liked it when people would try to intimidate me and stuff you know like it'd give me a little bit of it give me a little bit of satisfaction mm. that like a f that they couldn't they couldn't provoke me yeah but I, people may you know people make a lot out of like the psychological games and stuff like that because it it looks good on it looks good on uh like movie style it does I mean, it's the stuff. Conor McGregor effect, right? Yeah, and of course, it's real. It's, it is real with McGregor, but yeah, you know, it's hot. I, I, don't, I don't know where, whether it is because 
Um, I don't know whether how much of the McGregor stuff is him trying to be the biggest showman he can mm. for for the money um, and for the for the for the drama and stuff, the hype. Uh, how much of it is to get into his opponent's head, and how much is it to get in him where he needs to be? Because you see, when 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 he does all of that, and the person doesn't really bite on that, I feel that it's a it's positive for the opponent. Like when we've seen it against Kabir, we've seen it against uh, Poirier in his later fights, where you know he's coming talking a lot of shit, and they just been like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, some people some people are immune to it, and what you know, once the once the trick has been exposed, once mm. you once you know that it's a, a just a just a piece that of theater, is, yeah. yeah. Well, then it, it loses a lot of its power. Yeah. But yeah, for for me, I, I never I, I never paid any attention to it. You know, mm. I just I just I don't know if it makes me a good or a bad person. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I would just I just like hurting people. No, not for anything, not for any personal reason. No, I just, I just, I liked getting hurt and I liked hurting people. Mm. And I didn't have to, I didn't say, didn't have to say anything or, or, or get any provocation. Or I just said, cool, you signed it there. I can, I can try to hurt you as much as I can within the rules and you can do the same back to me. Mm. And, but, and, and do you think that that's an interesting topic, which is the, this innate desire for many humans especially men to express violence upon others um and whether that is something that in your experience as a coach because i i feel that there are some you see it like i said obviously i see a lot of fighters through cage warriors and i feel like there's this very obvious difference between a fighter and a martial artist whether they fight in in different ways is irrelevant one of them wants to hurt someone and the other one just wants to do the sport yeah have you find have you also found that there's that differentiation between those two yeah i should i should say so i think i mean i like i think i started as a fighter and i've ended up being a martial artist because Mm. it's an occupation and because my pleasure now is in understanding things and knowing things yeah but my pleasure then was in like hurting and being hurt and that's really that's really what did for me i mean well I mean, I got I got injured because because I, I didn't have that athletic base. Mm. That and then I started training as a full time mm. athlete, you know. And then I, I just overtrained, gave myself a lot of injuries. I got I was unlucky in a couple of fights. I got eye gouged and I can't see very well. And I got spiked in a training session and mm. I can't move so good. And that you know, so I started doing kickboxing for a little while. Where I couldn't cause I just couldn't wrestle anymore because my my head was constantly going into spasm and yeah. you know, I got some, you know, every, like everybody who's in our, our game, you end up with some bulging discs and stuff like that. Um, but that's kind of what, that's kind of what did for me, you know, and the, the, the sport was done with me. Like I didn't, you know, I was like an early man, didn't mm. quite make it, you know, I, I probably could have, you know, if I'd been a little bit lucky, I'd gone on a UFC undercard, but I, a couple of the fights that I had, you could have chucked them on a UFC undercard and nobody mm. would have thought they were a miss, you know, but, I was never going to be champion or anything. Like I was never going to make life-changing money. So it's a bit irrelevant now. It mattered to me because all I wanted was a pair of gloves that had UFC written on them. Yeah. And then now, of course, with the perspective of an adult, I think, fucking hell, I don't want anything to do with that company. They're awful. Mm. You know? But it's it's the premiership, isn't it? You know. But so really, there was no like, I wasn't really able to make a living at it. You know. So I'm kickboxing, and if if one fight fell through, 
I'd have to do two fights the next month, you know, and I loved that. It was great. I was like fighting two weekends back to back. Wow, it was a rush. I loved it. You know, sometimes I would even like, I was addicted to fighting, you know, mm. where I would like, I would, I would take my, I would take my shorts and my bag to a show if I was cornering, just in case just anybody in case. pulled out, you know, and then I would, I would feel like a coward because I hadn't fought that night you know even though I knew I was fighting next week it was nuts you know is but that because the it. rush of fighting well yeah well this is the thing isn't it it's like a drug so either you do more you know well like so every time I would fight I would go I'd be like I'd go off the under off the prelims to the to the main card then I was top of the bill you know then I was top of the bill in a stadium you know and then my face is on the poster and then I start creeping back down so I think okay well I've got to do more than I've got to do a fight every weekend, you know, like, mm. so it was like partly, I was, I was partly for the money, you know, but partly just cause I, I needed that, I needed that fix. Like I didn't feel okay unless I was fighting all the time. Wow. And uh, you know, even in the gym, you know, like we used to do way too much hard sparring, but I, like I needed, I needed that fix all the time. Like, like a drug addict essentially was like, all I'd really done was swap one set of bad habits for another. But I was getting, uh, I was getting applause. You know, I was mm. getting, uh, you know, the more that I was willing to hurt myself, you know, the more pats on the back I would get. It's a socially accepted addiction. Yeah. And that drug is something that your body produces, but it's still very much the same effect. But I was just, I was just self-harming in the end, you know, like just the same as if. You know. But I feel like this is a common story for every single, almost unanimous, unanimously every single pro fighter, which is nobody finishes on top really you mm. know i mean the one guy um and that's why i was terrified when he came back but like for me gsp was the one who got out yeah when he was on top when he came back years later i was like please for the love of god why and then got the win and then back and then he's out again uh you know i guess habib is another one for different reasons who got out on top mm. but but you see these legends peak and then fall and then if they're lucky they get out after a while and if they're unlucky like Masvidal's just retired hopefully he stays retired he's still relatively young he's still pretty much in good shape it was a smart decision but you'll see guys like Anderson Silva even yeah. though he's still even though like he's boxing now and doing really well th th you, you've seen this huge fall and it just seems that he is so addicted to the rush of fighting he will keep doing it until he can't do it physically can't do it anymore it's so hard to let it go mm. i mean you you know the bind if you you know if you lost well you can't go out on a loss you got to keep trying to get that one win back and then you win one you think oh, i can still do this mm. so there's there's no end to it you know and that's and it's not just it's not just the thrill it's the it's the lifestyle Owen was talking about this mm. you know they're like you don't know anything else that mm. is that is how you live you know and it's very very hard to adjust you know like in some way i don't want to equate it to a prison but there's this institute you, you are institutionalized yeah. yeah you institutionalize yourself you know and then when you you have to you have to try to exist in the real world it's it's really frightening it's it's very it's very tempting to go back and try to relive those things mm. so like i had to retire for some injury reasons and i thought i could move on and, and do something else and then i just couldn't let it go oh. it was so hard to let it go this was 2000 and 13 20th yeah the end of 2013 i i had the retirement fight, and then I just thought, which you won, yeah, yeah. I, 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 because I'd had kind of a good year. I think Global Fandle beat me on points. He was a pretty good fighter. Um, I don't wonder what happened to him. You know, but uh, yeah, he was a nightmare for me. He was like, I was like, now man, just stand in front of me and let me hit you. Come yeah. on, play the game. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, he was a great mover. So I, I struggled with him, and I think Kevin Ward. 
Um, uh, beat me on points as well. I couldn't put a glove on him. He's like six four, and I was like, I was like trying to dunk a basketball, trying to punch him in the face. I was, I just got just walked into him and just got mm. chin. But uh, but yeah, but like you know, like I wasn't getting knocked out, and I, I think I won like like eight out of ten, and the all the ones I lost on points. And I just thought, okay, well, this is not getting any better. You know, I'm fighting at the same venues, and the money's not going up, and. Uh, yeah, just give it up now before your brains are scrambled because I could feel myself getting punchy. Mm. And people were saying like, well, you know, I know you still talk fine. You see, you know, I wasn't uh, slurring my words and, but I, I knew I was getting punchy. I was forgetting things. I was getting like uh, t- uh, time lapse, you know, where I, all of a sudden I'd be in a different room. I was like, how did I get here? How much time yeah, has gone by? This, you know, this kind of stuff. And I thought, I, I have to give this up. Um, Smarter than most fighters. But it was... T- it, it it was really tough because I felt completely empty afterwards. So I tried to, I tried to have a comeback. I thought, like, right, cool, well, I'll have a tune up fight. Then the tune up fight fell through. And my teacher answered, "I'm I'm going to I'm going to Thailand." So like, so you know, the, one of the things that you know, I, I couldn't fight for the UFC. That wasn't going to be a possibility. But the one thing I hadn't done was fight a Thai in Thailand. Mm. You know, that was a, you know, like you know, the ambition from having watched Van Damme when I was a kid. You know, so I thought, cool, we'll go and do that. That'll be my tune up. But Alan, Alan knew he said, you know, it was just a swan song. So we just had had this nice fight. I had a good experience, you know. And I, you know, I was thinking like, oh, am I just not who I used to be? Have I lost it? Can I not cut it anymore? And it was just the same as all the other ones, and it was great. I had a wonderful time. I had the best feeling. But I just knew, yeah, I just came to terms with the fact that this is up, it's over. I can't mm-hmm. keep doing this anymore. You know? And I didn't want the day to end. I just stayed up all night because I just didn't want that feeling to go away that I thought, because I'm never going to feel this way again. But when I look back and I thought, what I actually did for me, yeah, the injuries, the earning potential and stuff, but I didn't want to hurt the guy anymore. Mm. It was there. It was weird because the kid was, you know, the kid was, uh, you know, throwing some elbows at me, and I went elbowing back, and I thought I hit him on the gloves and forearms on purpose because I knew he's a journeyman, you know, like he needs his money next weekend. It doesn't make any difference to me if I get, I got a cut, and I thought it was funny because I've got a souvenir, and you know, it doesn't make any difference to me. But I thought, oh, if I cut him, he's not going to get his money in next week, you know. And so like I was low kicking him and landing a good low kick, and I thought, do you know, what? I'll just lay off because like if he's limping. Yeah, he might not make his money next week. It's not a this is not a champion mentality, you know. And I didn't, I just, I didn't want to hit him in the head. And I look back at some uh, like later bouts, and I like sparring. I would hit people full power to the body, mm-hmm. and I hit them full, you know, full power to the legs. And I realized I was just tapping them on the head. And I was saying, oh, it's because I've got fragile hands, you know, because like, I did I had glass hands, and uh, so I would just do like a Joe Calzaghe shoe shine, you know. But like, then I realized, oh, I was trying. I was trying not to hit his brain. I thought, uh, and it was good. it was when my daughter was born. Really? I just, I just all of a sudden, just didn't want to hurt people anymore. Like, and I, I'd learned to compete by that time. I, I really enjoyed competing, you know, which is not something I had to begin with. Mm. I, I really struggled. I was not a good competitor. It took me a lot of time to work it out. But that was I was a good competitor, and I still like competing. I got like a lot of thrill from it. But I didn't like hurting anybody anymore. And I thought, you know, that's up. This is this is the herd business. I can't be, I can't be doing this no more. So it was quite reassuring because it was too late for me anyway. I wasn't going to mm. have any more success. So it was actually quite a nice way to, to close out. I thought, well, I didn't get what I wanted, but I got what I needed. Mm. And uh, yeah. and do you have a, any advice for any fighters who are making that transition out of the game to make that 
easier instead of having to go cold turkey and suffer sort of some of the lows of not having that part of their life there anymore. Mm. Well, I mean, what a what a state of guys now. It's like, you remember Brian Clough told all the told all his his uh, professional footballers to to go and get a trade. Oh, this is a, this is a famous story where all the, mm. the uh, uh, all the England players were going. But I'm I'm a professional footballer. I have made it. He was like, right, son. You're all going to learn to be Sparkies and plumbers and whatever else. Really? Because you know, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously the money wasn't quite what it was back in those days. Uh, back today, mm. back in those days. But uh, yeah, wise advice. So now, if I can, if I've got people now, I'm going to say, like, look, if you're going to do this, plan Plan B doesn't mean I don't believe in you. Because I always took it this way when people say, come on, you got to do something. You got to do something else in case this doesn't work out. And I was like, fuck you, you don't believe in me. I'm going to yes. be one of those one of those stories. But of course, all of those stories are reverse engineered yeah. by people who made it and then go, it was the power of my self belief that made it for me, and there is no such thing as luck which is what you have to tell yourself at the time. Yeah. That you're governing all of the factors. But so much of life is luck. You're, and you, you need a plan B. You're, and it doesn't mean that you don't believe in it. It just means that you're, you appreciate that the sport is not fair. No. The world is not fair. You're, and you need, a, you need a government for that. In terms of people who are actually retiring, even if they've got this plan B, and you know, even if they're lucky to have people in their lives that love them for, for other reasons, it's... it's I think the the expression that, pe- that people use is like uh, intrinsic value. Mm. The for me personally, I didn't have I, I didn't have anything good in my life until I started fighting and winning fights, mm. and then people started to treat with to treat me with with respect, and then people started to want to be around me, want to know me, and, and in a way that nobody ever had before. So for me, my self-esteem was completely contingent on the fact that I was winning fights. Mm. And so I'd get terribly depressed when I had a slump, when I, you know, I was, I, I was trying to compete jujitsu in Brazil and I wasn't doing very well. I thought, oh, well, I'm a worthless, meaningless person. Then I started mm. to win again and people started wondering, I said, okay, right, cool, I've got value. You know? And then when I stopped fighting, all of a sudden, all of those people were gone. You know? I had no value to them anymore. You know? They move on to the next person. And so I thought, oh, well, I'm worthless again. Uh, of course, this is, you know, I think you just have to understand that the, it's just a fleeting thing. You mm. know? And it's not that it's not real. You know, like the love and adoration that you, that you get from a crowd, it's real. It really exists. Yes. You know? But it only exists for, for a moment. And the people who really love you, they're going to love you just the same whether you got knocked out in the first round you know, or whether you came home with some gorgeous championship belt and doesn't make any difference to them mm. you know? and if you if you lose lose perspective on on who's who and you don't cultivate this this notion of having intrinsic value you know, then it's that once the once the plug is pulled on the career well you're never going to get that other kind of love but you got to realize it was just it was just temporary it's not fake mm. it's just very temporary superficial it's yeah it's very superficial you know because there's you know like we're talking about mcgregor and his persona you know like there's this this is you this is part of you you know it's not quite pro wrestling where it's an actual character mm. you know like you know the, the character is you know, i should you get you know like you when you're when you're presenting when you when you're teaching your seminars and when you present the show you're like you're not being false you're but you're presenting the professional dance house yeah it's part of you you know it is you know but it's not the whole you. you know? mm. So the what, the person that you present, who's the 
who's the champion. It's just it's just a it's just a part of you, and it's a very small uh, it's a very small part of you. And if if you let it be your all, uh, you're gonna you're gonna end up stringing yourself eventually, up. Eventually, eventually, that's gonna come back to bite you. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I was I was really lucky that I had a few of the right people around to to help me out. And it was actually friends that I'd made through jujitsu, mm. um, but nothing to do with jujitsu. It was com- completely different. Yeah. I feel like, uh, interestingly enough, I think that the people who value you, not for your accomplishments within the sport, are people in the sport because they. If you're a black belt, you walk down the street, maybe people think that's impressive. But if you're a black belt in a gym with 10 black belts, you're just another dude. It kind of takes all of that stuff out. And I feel like for that reason, a lot of fighters can see other fighters or in my case, jiu-jitsu guys can see other jiu-jitsu guys for more of who they are as a person outside of jiu-jitsu than the people outside of jiu-jitsu, which is strange because you'd expect it to be the other way it's really hard to know it's really not it's really hard to know who's who until until the time comes when mm. when the chips are down or mm. you have no more you have no more business value to that person you know with these guys who god man they were my best friend they loved me because they knew all they had to do was pick up the phone i would come and you know i would come and save the show fight whoever you wanted me to fight on 24 hours notice oh well, yeah of course you love me you know, never hear from them again you know, mm. And then there's then then out of the blue, I'll have some promoter, you know, like Dale from Made for the Cage. Why well, you just send me a message and say like, "How you doing, buddy? You know, hope you're well." I said, "Oh, what's up? Nothing, just checking in." You know, you you don't know you don't know who the person is. There's people I used to train with every day, and we never talk anymore. Mm. You know, and then there's you know there's people that like that I can I can count on no matter what but you don't find out until it's over You're it's right. very hard this is what how, how do you give advice on this yeah, how do you spot the person oh, no. well fuck everything up and yeah. then see who's still there by your side <laughs> see who's got your back You're like, that is yeah. yeah it's very hard to tell yeah that's mm. interesting so uh, we've spoken a little bit about retirement uh, but let's talk a little bit about that career that you had because you did have a storied MMA career after you come back from Brazil. Like you said earlier, you've, you've got these tricks, secrets, advantages, <laughs> uh, and you're fighting pro MMA. You have, uh, how many fights did you have? It was, uh, I had about, well, I had about 50 something in total, but that was Thai fights, kickboxing fights and MMA fights. I think I had about sort of about half a year, about 25 each. Yeah. Um, it's quite a yeah. lot of MMA fights, especially, yeah it must have been and it must have been crazy back then because it wasn't established like it is now yeah i always wanted to do 100 fights but i don't know why i had that in my head so i felt like i kind of like came up short by 50 percent yeah but like i said that wasn't a realistic no that was only a few guys that's like, 50 that's 50 percent less just guy is brain only, damage yeah <laughs> there's only a few guys like paul jenkins and stuff yeah. like that yeah, who, yeah, could, yeah. who could accomplish 100 fights yeah. or guys who or on the other hand, guys who were bums, you know, like lose yeah, almost yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to have hundred competitive fights, that yeah, it was a bit unrealistic in the in the window. But also, like I shortened up the window a little bit by mm. overtraining, so I didn't get as many bouts as I mm. as I wished I'd had. You know, well, my my boxing coach Martin Hallgate, who uh, uh, sadly passed away a while ago, one time he just said to me like, he "said Pete, why don't you just take a year off, mm. just a year or two? And I was like. No way! I'll be I'll be dead by then. You know, this, the, the, there's not a year to spare. So if you just take a step back and make this last a little bit longer. Just you know, just take a year off and 
get schooled a little bit, recover your body a little bit. And I completely rejected what he said. And I mm. think now, you know, why did I not listen to the, you know, to the wise man? Mm. But unfortunately, yeah, like I, I just, I had, to, I had to keep going. Like I believed I could mind over matter everything. You know? And so it, it took a few years off. But yeah, so I had about, I don't know, about 25 or so MMA fights. Um, and you had them all around the world? Oh yeah, I had some real good times. Yeah, like I went, um, what what was the best? Place? Ah, I fought, I fought in Belgium actually, which was dead cool. That was that yeah. was a wild place. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was the first prof- time they'd allowed professional MMA in in Belgium. Uh, so it was in Charleroi, um, and I fought a guy called Ivan Musaro. Um, Musaro was good. He, he beat. Um, he had the Cage Warriors title for for one stint. Uh, Oh Christ! Who did he beat? Somebody good. <laughs> There's yeah. This is the brain damage kicking in. Um, the Irishman, pro boxer, the guy who was the first guy to beat McGregor. Uh, is it Joe? Uh, yes, yeah, Joe. Oh, I feel terrible for forgetting his name because he's such a good fighter. This is just the brain damage. It's not disrespect to him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway, he was. Oh, he was a tremendous fighter. I yeah. know who you're talking but about. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Even beat him for the Cage Warriors world, world title. So he was. Oh. A, he was a credible opponent. But like. Oh, it was a wild place, Charlotte. Too. They took me to. They took me to the hotel, and uh, we're driving down the street, and then around the corner the other way, like a car full of guys with like you know like a um, like a open open back pickup yeah. with like guys with AK forty sevens pointing in here. I was like, what? Fucking hell, where am I? And they took me. Uh, so they took me to the hotel, and there was blood all over the bed. I was like, fucking hell! <laughs> like, where am I? Where was this? Uh, in Charleroi, in Belgium. It was awesome, Belgium. actually. It was, I'm making it sound bad, but it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it was, uh, so they took me to the Wayne, and the Wayne's in like a nightclub, but like on the on on the street with where the nightclub was, was all brothels with like, uh, you know, like Amsterdam-style girls uh-huh. in the window dancing. But on the other side of the street is like residential homes where there's kids playing football in the front garden and stuff, and a little girl playing with dollies, and there's girls dancing on the other side. I was like... Am I having like a weird trip here? Like, uh, like this is just—it was just the maddest place I've ever been. But anyway, it was absolutely class. So, like, yeah, I've, I've, I fought even there, and like, I made the mistake when you fight because I was always fighting taller guys because yeah. I was short for my weight, and uh, and even was shorter than me. And I thought, oh, cool, I'll be able to like jab him. So I went out and I jabbed down at a shorter man. It's like the cardinal sin in boxing. Like it was the most stupid mistake. I came straight out, tried to jab down at him, and he bombed me with an overhand, put mm. me right on my ass. And I was like seeing three of them coming towards me. I went like, "Oh, wow, I've, I've, been, I've fought here before." <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, I fought this guy before. This actual fight's happened before." No. I thought, oh no, I've. He must have decked me because I'm having deja vu. No. Quick, get up! <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was wild. Wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so like I kind of like I, I, uh, anyway. He won the first round with a knockdown. Um, and I probably I won the second round and then they stopped it on cuts. You know, like I'd, I'd give him like just a little like grazing left hook and he just had a little cut mm. and they were paranoid because it was the first legal show. Mm. So we never got, it was so sad because I never got to finish the fight. But then I realized this was kind of like, even though like I didn't count the victory as a victory. We were around a piece, I counted it as a draw. I told the guy afterwards, I said like, yeah. I'm sorry, man, if we ever get back together again, we can do it again. You know, like it doesn't count. I don't consider it a victory. You know, but it felt for me like it was a moral victory because like mm. I wasn't thinking like, oh, yes, it's over and I'm getting my hand raised. I was thinking, oh shit, man. 
I was really just starting to enjoy that. And mm. now we had another five minutes of that that we could have had. And now it's over. Yeah. Damn. And I thought, okay, I've really started to love to compete. I've learned how to compete finally. I'm not just, I'm not just wanting to win. I really want to compete. And then the win comes as a byproduct of the process, mm. which is, which sounds very obvious when we're talking now in terms of like that's basic sports psychology. But yeah, but I think that a lot of people don't see it that way. It takes a lot. I mean, you could. I'd read all these things beforehand, but it took me a long time to get out of that. You know, the fixation on the result. Yeah. You know? And this is what was causing me to underperform and have the breaks on all the time. And once I really started to enjoy competing, then the, you know the wins would just come mm. as part of the process. It's a, it's a very very simple thing to say, but I think it takes some some amount of experience to to accomplish this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm trying to think which which other good fights to have. Uh, what was fun? Uh, Russia. Do you oh, fight in Russia? I do, oh, for kickboxing in Russia. Okay. Yeah. How was yeah. that? Ah, oh, that was that was awesome. That was yeah, amazing experience. You know, with the um, <laughs> the uh, we got to see like Red Square and like the people's palaces of the underground and stuff. But it was so cool. It was like minus God knows what. But I like I was still rehydrating, so I, I had my bottle of water with me and I went to drink. And I was like, what the fuck is in that bottle? It, it frozen onto my beard as the uh, water had touched there. It was that cold. Wow. It was a, a wonderful experience. And uh, yeah, and then I got chinned by a Russian. Like, <laughs> it was like, like you know, I'm like, God knows what the fuck was in it. There was a horseshoe in them gloves. You know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, because tie hand wraps, you can, you can wrap them pretty gnarly anyway, you know. Yeah. But like, Jesus, man, I'd never been, I'd like, but I, per- I, I perforated my eardrum again, you know, so I'm pretty deaf in that ear now. And I had vertigo for ages afterwards. Where I was like, I was in a pretty bad way. From that fight? Yeah, yeah. If I, were, if I, I, was, I was painting the gym wall and I was just standing on a step and I'm like hanging onto the wall. Like wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall down. I felt like I was, uh, it took me ages to recover from the vertigo. Mm. So yeah, but yeah, great place. But all the Russians, they were coming up to me afterwards going like, oh, let's get my picture taken. I was like, but I lost. And they're like, in Russia, we don't care. It was a good fight. Mm. Oh, cool. Just different mentality there. Like, where I, you know, I was, I, I was dejected and I just didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home because I, you know, because I'd lost. And, you know, I just I had to wait for the transport because it wasn't my place. All the Russians came up and they were so, they were so cool about it. I really loved their, uh, their attitude to the sport. Yeah. Uh, they just, you know. The other one that I've written down that I have to ask you about is, is it Ma Balgua? Ah, the master, ma. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me about this. This, yeah, yeah. This, tell me the story. The, just the shit thing is, this is the thing that I'm most internet famous for. For like, like all, like any decent fight I had was is like it's not on YouTube. It's behind a paywall somewhere, or it's on a DVD in somebody's loft, and nobody, you know, you know nobody knows, nobody cares. Yeah. You know, and I'm famous because of this dickhead. Like honestly, this guy. So obviously, like I, I was, I was out of work after I'd um, after I'd finished fighting, and I needed some money. Uh, and uh, my friend uh, down in London, he coached a guy boxing. The guy was like, a, I don't know what he was in investment banking or something like that, but very, very wealthy guy. You know. But this guy also would go over to China and train with this kung fu master, Master Ma Bagua, and um, and he so he's making a tribute film to him. You know, and so he. Um, 
as far as I understood, it was just, you know, because obviously there, there was no film back in the day. Nobody mm. ever seen his achievements as a young man or whatever. So he wanted to make him like a, like a fluff piece, essentially, yeah. you know, as a tribute to him, which all sound really, really nice to me. So he wants to contrast the traditional with the modern sport. And they're looking for uh, an ookie for the film who can like demonstrate the look of modern martial arts against this traditional style. And I, I love martial arts. You know, like I love Kung Fu. Like it's, uh, I'm interested in any martial art. You know, it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, Hema sword yeah. fighting and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. I wish I had the time to get into all that stuff. Oh, tell me about it. I just, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a total nerd, you know, yeah. so I'm interested in everything. So I, I wanted to see what the guy's martial arts were, was about. Yeah. And, uh, and so I get there and the guy, I'm saying, okay, give me direction. What do you want me to do? You know, like, how do you want me to fall? How do you want me to do, do, attack? You know, and the guy's, okay, we'll just spar. I'm like, well, I can't spar because he's, like 65 years old you know? yeah and i'm like i oh, just just spar you'll figure it out and i'm like ah uh, i'm pretty sure we need to work something out here you know this is like because i've done a little bit of fight choreography before i'd um um uh, been in a in a music video where like the storyline was that there was a bare fight going on and me and the guy just had to work it out you know we went mm. pros at this but it, it worked really good i was mm. like I, i'm really pleased with the result you know uh, and it looked realistic enough you know like it wasn't raging bull but it, you know i've seen boxing movies that had less realistic looking punching so i was really pleased with yeah. what we we accomplished and what the camera team did you know so i was thinking like okay i was thinking it's going to be like this you know where we rehearsed the moves and then we do them you know and i was there to be the fall guy you know like i wasn't like you know wanting to beat him up i was thinking like well how do i how do i make this look good and in the end it just looked shit and i'm going like look like this isn't going to look good enough like you need to like give us a give us a stunt you know like like i'm gonna fall a certain way and make it look like a real thing like you gotta give me something but the guy just wanted to do just some bullshit it just didn't look good and he was kind of like trying to eye poke me and stuff like that and the guy was an ass you know like he was he was just a prick you know he used to you know when people like talk to you and they're like they'll kind of go like, ah i could have had you there and yeah. he keep like kind of slapping me as if like oh i could have got you and i'm like ah, well yeah 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 not really but okay so it was just dead awkward like i was just glad when it was over and i said sorry to the guy i said look i did my best but i didn't really know i couldn't understand what he was wanting me mm. to give him you know and uh uh, anyway, we actually we did some shui zhao, you know, like which it was pretty good. You know, this was the sad thing. Um, anyone who doesn't know shui zhao is just a uh, uh, Chinese style of jacket wrestling, mm. and uh, and he he was good. He was good at balance taking, but you know, with judo wrestling etc., I'm trying to score inbounds. I'm trying to throw him on the mat. Mm. There's a push out in a lot of Chinese martial arts. If you see like sandal fighting where it's on a platform, mm. like there's a, there's a, you can win by pushing them out. So he's trying to throw me off the mat, and I'm trying not to injure him but trying to get thrown on the mat, but then he would keep trying to throw me. So even that bit looked shit. Even mm. the bit that like where I thought, oh, he's actually quite good. He's mm. you know really strong for this age. So he wasn't like, he wasn't like complete bullshit. You know what I mean? It wasn't just trickery. The guy was an actual martial artist, but he was just old. Yeah. You know, that's, that's all there was to it, you know? So I just tried to treat him with, with respect. Anyway, to, just to get, just to cut to the chase. Uh, People are probably a little bit familiar with Xu Dong, but if they're not, he's that, that guy, his nickname is Mad Dog, and he, he's, he's not a great MMA fighter at all, you know, but he goes around like challenging Chinese uh, martial arts masters of, of Tai Chi to, to kind of debunk them. Because, the, mm. you know, there's, all, there's a sort of mythology about Chinese martial arts that's a little bit hard to comprehend over here, the way mm. that it's tied into the cultural fabric. You know, like it's part of Chinese nationalism, uh, that there's that there's a, a sort of m magic 
essentially possessed by Chinese martial artists. Yeah, and uh, and it, and it's and this this runs right through the the political system, you know. So the they have like kind of some powerful allies in in the military and government. Um, so anyway, this is very controversial what the guy is doing, which it's completely irrelevant over here. Like over here, you would just say like, oh, it's just in really bad taste for a young MMA fighter or youngish MMA fighter. To beat up an old guy, yeah. You, you wouldn't go around to the local Kung Fu club and challenge them because they're not fighters. The people who are doing Kung Fu for pleasure and, you know, like it would be entirely distasteful. You yes. know, it would just be considered bullying. But over there, the, there's, there's something to actually debunk. Mm. And, uh, and so in the wake of... In the wake of this, uh, Ma Bagrao's got the footage and he releases it and states that he's had an actual fight with me. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. So I keep getting loads of messages and comments from Chinese people saying, like, you know how things translate, but oh, I wish I could, I wish I'd looked at something because some of them were hilarious, yeah. you know, like, but yeah, it, it was just com complete nonsense. And yeah. I'm like, oh, like, I wasn't actually worried that anybody who was in the know would think that, like, oh, I'd lost you got the real being fight. Up by an old man. Like, yeah. you know, like, I couldn't give a fuck now. Anyway, I, 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 doesn't doesn't really matter to me what people think. Yeah, you know? but nobody was going to believe it. it. Didn't look good enough to have had been a real fight. So it's probably for the best that it, that it wasn't. But then what it looked like was that I'd somehow been paid to be part of debunking jujitsu or MMA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like like as if I was on the other side, as if I'd sold out. I'm like, oh fucking hell! I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> oh. So yeah, just just ridiculous. But uh, but yeah, just. It's but just, I've seen the footage, and when you look at it, it doesn't look like a real fight. Of all. course not. Yeah. But that, I mean, that was initially that's what bothered me because I was trying to make it look. So thank God like it, it was. Thank real, God it did or, it right. Yeah, or at least trying to make it look like a good demonstration of technique, if not yeah. necessarily a real fight. Yeah. But yeah, but the guy had lived here in Newcastle. No, no this was the weird thing. Yeah, he'd had like he'd had a coon in uh, in Chinatown, you know, which is not really a Chinatown, you know, because it's, it's too small of a city. It's a uh, it's a Pan Asian restaurant street yeah. with a with a pool hall in it. Um, so he had this martial arts school there. So he would stand at the monument. Have you been a monument? So the, yes. it's a, the, where the nice uh, architecture converges, and you know, he would stand there in his full regalia with his spears and stuff like that, and. Uh, the guy who'd made the film and said like, oh yeah, he used to challenge people to the Valley Tudor fights there. The thing, I thought, well, I knew what he'd done and and it wasn't full contact challenge fights. He never had full contact challenge fights with anyone. What he'd done was like the party piece stunts, you know, where you have 10 people push against and one person resists and yeah. things like this, you know, like the the tricks, you know, like it's, yeah. he, he was a street performer. Yeah. But he wasn't a fighter. You know? And so I th I'd thought like, Okay, well, well, maybe he had had a few, you know, like Bruce Lee with his undocumented Hong Kong street fights. Yeah, well, maybe he, maybe he had been a tough guy when he was a kid, and then he just just hadn't moved with the times and started to believe his own hype or whatever. Mm. But actually, now I think he's just not well, mm. you know? and uh, he ended up actually challenging somebody, and the fight went through. The first one with Xu Zhaodong, uh, Zhaodong had been arrested, and uh, I think it turned out his family. Had, uh, had called, uh, had called uh, um, the police and said, "Don't allow this to happen." The family of the, the MMA fighter, no, the family, the family of, of the Mabakwa, other guy. Yeah, just yeah, said, yeah. "Like, oh, look, look, he's because he's, he's going to get, he's going to get, yeah, yeah, yeah." And this, oh, don't allow this to happen. So the police come and arrested Xu Zhaodong. Wow! But then he finally did have like a kickboxing fight or something like that against some like amateur hobby guy mm. who's like in his fifties or whatever. But like, there's a big difference between a guy who's in his fifties and a guy who's you know nearly seventy. Mm. You know? And he yeah, and he got knocked out really, really badly. Oh. 
and he was still at it. He was still, and I started thinking like, ah, oh, this guy's like crazy. Yeah, he's not well. Like you, you'd think like you know, you see an old boxer, maybe seventy years old, you know, and he might not be able to move like he used to. He might, you know, he might have arthritis, but he still looks like he's boxed. Yeah, you know, like he looks like he he, he could have done it if he could have moved a bit faster or yep. whatever. You're like he didn't look like a person who ever had a fight. I think he was just a pure fantasist. Mm. And it was really, really sad. So people kept sending me the video saying, like, ah, look, he got, you know, I bet you're glad that he got his comeuppance. And not really. No, I'm not, man. I think, like, I think he's not well, and nobody should have ever let that happen. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sad thing. It was funny. It's funny what martial arts does to people. Like, what, like, it's like, a very unique, I wouldn't even say sport, because, like, it's a very unique whole genre of life where it's so much of it as you said is mythologized and it goes back thousands of years and a lot of it is heavily built into the culture and everyone knows about it but not a lot of people really understand it and then we have the traditional stuff and we have the modern stuff that really works and with mma and the ufc it's it's martial arts a really interesting thing Mm. yeah yeah what was the what was the oh yeah that was just about that that was that was just about him. I mean, I've got a few other things on here, uh, stuff like about, and something that you've spoken about quite a bit, and I want to get a little bit more of a take on it, which is longevity, um, mainly from the going through the experience of someone who has kind of had the opposite, which is you, you went too hard, too, too fast, and mm. your body has broken down because of that. Um, in hindsight to that, I mean, what do you do now to try and mitigate some of the damage that is done to the body and some of that that aging process through train uh, through overtraining is there a way of training hard enough to be world class without sacrificing longevity hmm i mean in terms of what i do now i find beer is a very good painkiller yeah that really that really takes the edge off yeah yeah, yeah i'm yeah. sure it so, does yeah <laughs> <laughs> I do my I do my best now. I do my best, but it's yeah, no, yeah. I kind of, I have to I have to accept that I'm physically declining, and I have to compensate uh, through through knowledge, you know. And that might be like actually on the mat when I'm actually doing my best to be hands on. Mm. But really, I have to accept that what my job is now is not to do things. My job is to know things, mm. you know, and be able to communicate those things, you know. So having a more clear. Uh, notion of myself as a coach which is hard in jiu-jitsu it's very very difficult because like you know in other sports you know the fighting sports like nobody in their right mind would go i cussed the model he was shit i never saw him spar with tyson once yep <sighs> like yep. you know 100 percent. like those guys you know we, we know all of those guys like real cell was not famous because he was a, a great fighter he was famous because he was a great boxing brain that yeah. could direct things properly like yeah. that was the coaching role you know, and you know, of course we know in, in all sports there's many examples of very high performers that can't produce the same results with anybody else you know, or don't desire to you know, and people who were never any great shakes or never even competed at all that can get wonderful results with other people you know um, so you know we, we know this in, in jiu-jitsu and MMA and, and in all sports you can find examples of this but for whatever reason as a martial artist you're always required to prove it you know, which on one hand, on one hand, is good for us, you know, because it keeps us, uh, you know, it keeps us disciplined. You know, like I have, there's a lot of times that I don't feel like training anymore, mm. and I think like, 
man, I have to do this because I have to keep the respect of the of the guys. It's not good enough for me to just say do it like this. I have to show you. Mm. I have to show you something. And if I want, and because it's such a tactile sport, you know, you can see boxing. You can see Muay Thai. You, you have know, to feel like jujitsu. You have to feel it. You have to feel it. I can't. I, I mean. There, there are some things, yeah, of course, yeah, I can observe and you know, say you should have done this instead of doing that. You know, but when it gets to somebody who's like at a purple belt level or something like this, you know, like it's very hard to perceive why something worked or didn't work, mm. you know, just, just with your eyes, oftentimes, you know. So that necessity for contact, like I don't feel, I don't feel like I can, I can be completely on the mat side. Mm. You know, if I see like, if I'm like catastrophically injured and I'm just stopwatch holding, it's very hard for me to do anything that's not just generic. Mm. Like if I really want to improve an individual, then I need to be able to keep my hands on them. So it is good in that respect, but it's also it sets like a, a an uh, uh, how do you, how do you how do you come to terms with the fact that you you're required to be a, a practical master? Yeah. Whilst your whilst your your body declines, mm. it's 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 not it it's not realistic. <laughs> Well, you just have to hope for, I mean, I've got, the problem for me now is that like, I'm coming to the end of the the generation that had real contact with me when I was still any good. Yeah. So I've got like Harry and George, you know, like, and Harry and George, they respect the things that I say and they value the things that I say. You know, like I've told those guys, I said, look, you know, oh, no, I'm be over a year ago. I said, guys, I've already told you everything I know. You know, like you guys, you guys are better than me. You know, like, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't hang with them for, for more than five minutes, you know. And uh, the only way that I give them good training is if they slow down for me and we'll just kind of play the game, mm. you know. And, uh, and I told them, I said, like, look, guys, you know, like I've taught you everything I know and you guys have surpassed my ability level. You know, I see sometimes the stuff that they teach, you know. I think, oh, God, we were working on that and he's just done it better than the thing that I showed him. He's added mm. details, he's added layers, which is wonderful. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, as a coach, this is your real desire, right? Like almost, no, not to be insulting as if I would call them like like children you know yeah. like but it's like to be like a father where you want your yeah. children to do better than you you know it's the same thing i want you know i want my students to surpass me and, and while they're doing this it gives me so much pleasure you know like that's the that's the best reward but i've lost the thread of what i was talking about dan sorry no we're just talk, <laughs> we're just talking about coaching longevity yeah yeah no it's, so, it's it, what you're talking about is uh is very interesting and also i must say talking to you today you, you're a very humble guy and, and 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 that's just in saying like very rarely does someone have the ability to to admit not just to themselves but to say out loud i've taught you everything i know now you're better than me do i think that's the case i think that's probably not the case i think that you probably have a lot of wisdom knowledge experience that they won't have yet but but just yeah. to say that is 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 impressive well again it's like it's, it's like saying you know i didn't invent something Mm. I just observed what works. Mm. Like I'm not really being humble. I'm just being being honest about what I mm. see. This is just this is just what happened. You know, it's uh, but yeah, yeah. With with Harry and George, at least they have this faith in me because when we first started training, they were younger and not as strong and athletic as they are. You know, I was more experienced and like they feel oh, okay. I believe. Mm. Uh, you know, I believe they didn't see me when I was in my prime, but I reassured them, said this guy was good when he was in his mm. prime. You know, and so I have this faith. Now guys come in the gym and they go like, there's the guy who stays in his tracksuit and holds the stopwatch in the corner. You know, like they don't, you know, they don't have any reason, reason to have any more faith in me. You know, and why would they take my guidance over the guidance of somebody that they see on YouTube? 
Mm. It's a little, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult, you know. Like so, once once the time comes where I really just can't put it on people anymore, like anybody, even from the beginning, ah, where do you stand? It's very, very hard. Yeah, and I think when it gets to that point, and I might be wrong, I'm not at that point, but you know, one day I imagine I will be. Um, you rely on the guys that you already have. You guy rely on guys from that previous generation, guys like Harry, guys like George, who are doing it, who can kick anybody's ass and still have that respect for you. I think there's a transitionary period with coaches. Because you're right, in, in, in jiu-jitsu especially, we have this thing where basically every coach with the with very few exceptions. I mean, the only exception that I can think of in jiu-jitsu is John Danaher is the only guy who didn't compete. All other jiu-jitsu coaches competed um, because there's not enough money in jiu-jitsu to, mm. why, why would you coach if you, if you weren't already in love with jiu-jitsu and competing in it to begin with? So basically all, all, all coaches have competed and there is this expectation when you go, um, like you said before, my instructor doesn't roll with me and people go, What? They can't believe it. Oh, that, get out of there. You know, but you go, oh, my instructor's in his late 50s and he had a professional MMA career and, you know, his body's broken now for whatever reason, you know. Um, I think that maybe we're going to see as jiu-jitsu gets a bit older because we're not seeing too many old guys. Jiu-jitsu is a, a very new sport, especially outside of Brazil, where um, where you can respect someone for purely their knowledge and wisdom and their guidance not for what they're able to physically do that moment. And I think that will have to come. And I think that will become more culturally understood in jiu-jitsu. <laughs> when we have guys who see that happening and there's that transition to... I mean, in Brazil, there's a lot of them. We don't have them in the UK, really. Yeah. In Brazil, there's a lot of guys in their 70s, 80s, masters, red belts, red and black belts, where when you go and learn from them, you do not expect to yeah. roll with them and to, to, mm. to have them do anything or roll full stop, but they still have that knowledge. I think what it is is a symptom of the fact that jiu-jitsu was, was promoted and based on the idea that you, that you prove it. It's a constant proof, you know, which is the beauty of jiu-jitsu because it's completely scientific, uh, completely scientific art. Yep. You know, there's no magic. You know, yep. There's no promise of magic. It's all science. You know, and so like the, mm. the idea that it's proved constantly that it became like the onus on each individual to prove it, which is what made it strong. You know? But also if you get to the point where you have that, you have that coach that you, you can't respect because you can, you can get the better of them. Mm. So well, you're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Mm-hmm. I think like I've got mm-hmm. like, uh, I've, got, I've got a guy um, who's come from elite rugby. Um, uh, a guy called Jack Payne. He played there. Uh, he played for Australia. You're like amazing athlete, absolutely amazing. 120 kilos of just raw steel and sex appeal. You know, like the, yeah. what, uh, you you wouldn't believe the, the like the the hundred meter sprint and the bench press on this guy. It's just absolutely out of this world. Yeah. Like, and uh, you think like, okay, so he's been training jujitsu for like a year. You're like, after six months, I can't do nothing. Mm. Of course, I can't do anything. You mm. know what I mean? Just lucky that I've got a guy who's come from a professional sports background who said, okay, this is the coach. Uh, I listened to him. Oh, wow. I did what he said and I got a good result. Yeah. Excellent. You know, a lot of guys will come in and just go like, well, I'm going to see if I can beat you up. Well, I'll beat you up. Yeah. There you go. You know, so it's, you know, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky one. So on one hand, it makes me, it, it makes me keep my dedication yeah. to a, some extent. You know. The other problem is I know it's, the, it, it's going to end 
it's going to end and how, how do I adapt? What am I going to do? You know, mm. Do I have to give it up because I can't, because I can't physically prove it anymore? Well, that would be a tragedy. That would be very sad. It would take away a big part of my life. And I think it would take away from other people as well if their ignorance to the idea that someone can be your coach without being able to physically defeat you. If that was everyone's mentality, we'd lose a lot of fantastic coaches. Maybe some of the best coaches. Because you, you imagine mm. like, you, you, you can't get uh, 60 years experience without being too old to do it yourself. You know, so what's it? You get to a point where your experience gets so high, the time you spend in the sport has got so long, but physically you can't do it anymore. So at that point, you become irrelevant. I don't think so. Mm. I think I think I think we need to start looking at it in the other way around, which is the 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 old masters that we have come to expect in traditional martial arts will eventually start to happen in modern martial arts. But it's part, it's part of martial arts mythology. Like the movie has this, right? You know, like, you know, the... the Pai Mei, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you, Still pluck your eye out. Exactly, exactly. You know, but this, because because we're simultaneously a martial art, you know, and a sport, this this pervades the this pervades the the, the cultural notions of yeah. it. Yeah, but of course it's a it's a fantasy. So simultaneously with something that's entirely scientific, and we're proud of the fact that it's entirely scientific and proven. You know, but still allow this idea to of of fantasy to pervade the to, to pervade the the cultural sphere. It's very very strange. You know, I, I wonder why we do that because the idea of, like wh- why we're martial art, but boxing is not a martial art. Boxing is a fighting sport, but jujitsu is considered a martial art. You go, well, where is the martial element? What is the martial element today? With throwing a hand grenade, mm. setting a timer, aiming a rifle. Like this is this is martial artistry now. Like why do we why do we persist in calling it martial arts at all? For marketing reasons. Yeah. You know? Why is why is mixed martial arts called mixed martial arts? Because they realized like Valituro and No Holds Barred and all this sort of stuff was marketing badly. You know, mm-hmm. it was going to get us banned. So we had to call it mixed martial arts because it has this this, this cultural baggage of mm. respect and honor. You know, it's got fuck all to do with respect and honor. It's just sports. It's, sport. <laughs> it's just sports. It is interesting because we have the, the sports that make up mixed martial arts, which are boxing, not considered martial art, uh, Thai boxing, wouldn't consider a martial art really uh, wrestling definitely not then you have judo where that is the one and and we're just we're just a child of judo as brazilian mm. jiu-jitsu is a child of judo so i think we have a lot of similarities there judo is that mix where it's a sport but it comes from a traditional martial art background so you have that combination of the expectation of lineage and respect and the traits of it whilst also having the sport ability. I feel like jiu-jitsu yeah. is very similar. So, I mean, well, because it's the, 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 Japanese, uh, the Japanese method, of course, has like a lot of cultural baggage attached to it. And uh, hence the, you know, the, the virtues of Bushido and, and, and all, of this, uh, all of this kind of stuff. You know, but then that's filtered through a Brazilian lens. Whoops. That's filtered through a Brazilian lens. With a with a different cultural perspective, you know, so it borrows little pieces, hit and miss. Yeah, you know, it's very very odd. Where you know, in terms of just a sport, you could quite ac- accurately refer to uh, judo as 
Japanese jacket wrestling. Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. You know, but it has this cultural baggage attached to it. Yeah. Same thing with Thai boxing. You know, Thai boxing, you couldn't really consider a, a martial art largely because it's it's from uh, uh, from Asia. Yeah. And so it has notions of like uh, Thai spirituality mm. and all this sort of stuff attached to it. You know, and then when you actually figure out what it's about, you go, ah, oh, fucking hell. God, it's, it's mostly about child exploitation, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> It's really, you know, it's really sad when it hits you what what it really is. You know, I got a friend who uh, uh, Pete Tiox. I don't know, you might you might remember Pete Tiox. He was the cage rage champion. Oh, he was an amazing fighter. But his real passion was Thai boxing. Um, well, actually, his real passion is academia. But he, he was just happened to be amazing at Thai boxing. He fought at Lumpini Stadium and stuff. And I was asking about, you know, like the the ceiling in the ring and the the Y crew and all this sort of stuff. You know, this the, you know it's supposedly like the the, the you seal the ring. To, to protect it from spirits that would enter the ring mm. and jeopardize the life of the boxer. And then the Y crew is to uh, show respect and honor for your teacher and all this kind of stuff. So it's not easy, right? There's no warm-up area, so uh, you need to have a stretch out. You know? And then while you're doing the stretch out, you're like, A, it gives the, it gives the gamblers the time to... Uh, to assess who's got the best poise. If you've never seen any of the fighters before, you see a move, you get an idea who's going to have the better dexterity. Yeah. You know, the second thing that it does is uh, allows the boxer to find out where the wet patches and the the, the buckles in the ring are because most of the rings are kind of old and damaged yeah. and stuff like that. So they've got like bad patches on them and then they spill water out. So you need to figure out when you when you stamp in the opponent's corner, you find out how wet the, the canvas is. And when you seal the ring in, you test how, how much give there is on the rope. So in case you lay back on the ropes and it's a loose rope and you, you throw yourself over the top. Wow. Just all this kind of stuff. Like the, like the, it's all practical. Yeah, there's a practical function to all of it. And oftentimes in modern shows, they just go like, we need to get all of these bouts done. You know, like, so just get in and get out. You know? So that, yeah, all of these things are just, you know, ah, you, you, I think it's very attractive when you look at like, uh, uh, an Eastern martial art, and you want to imbue it with this Oriental mysticism. Mm. So it's just sports, mm. you know, and everything is just gamesmanship. Mm. Mm. Interesting, Pete. I we we've gone over two hours. Um, did you have anywhere that you need to be? Uh, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's quarter past one. We can talk for right. a few minutes of this. <coughs> the camera's already run out of uh, <laughs> out of memory, but we're going to plow on anyway. Um, I mean, not not too much more. I mean, we've like I said, over two hours. Uh, I just wanted to kind of finally, because we touched on it earlier, and I think this is where you will have sort of the most interesting perspective and maybe the last thing we chat about, but sort of you've, you, you've been in mixed martial arts from the beginning in the UK. We've seen such a change, not just in the UK, but worldwide. I just want to know your thoughts on modern MMA as we see it today. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I probably already come across clear that I'm I'm quite cynical, mm. and uh, I wonder. Then, if people hear me talk, they'll go, "Why do you still do this? Mm. Like, why why are you still in the game when all you have is negative things to say about it?" So I must love it. I must love it because I can't I can't give it up, but. In terms of mixed martial arts, um, we've been promised for ages that it's the fastest growing sport. How many years did we hear that it's the fastest growing sport? You know, Is it not? Well, yeah, it, it could be, but it's in the context of there being no other new sports. Yeah. You know, like, well, 
it is the fastest growing sport because it's the only new one. Every other sport is already established. Mm. Right? Or the ones that people are, you know, paying to watch. So, and then when you look at like, what's the actual earning potential? Not the top, top guys. You know, what's the earning potential of the average Joe? <sighs> There's a lot more guys like me than there is Conor McGregor. Yeah. Uh, we just didn't get a note out of it. And I got a lot of other good stuff out of it. And, you know, whilst I say like, sometimes I regret not spending my life on something more worthwhile. I did get a lot out of it. But in terms of an actual job, the the money is terrible. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, and it, the problem, what the problem is neoliberal capitalism. It's, you know, it, there's no two there's no two ways around it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of money in the sport of mixed martial arts, but it's for a select handful of people, and most of them will never put on a pair of gloves in their life. You know? So it's it's hard for me to recommend it as a uh, as an occupation. Mm. You think like you know, and it's that I'm saying the the problem is neoliberal capitalism. The problem the problem is. It, is also the the way that uh, the U.S. has had generations and generations of red scare uh, propaganda. You know, so you'll you'll get a bunch of athletes, every time somebody mentions union. You know, mm. there's a bunch of athletes going, "That's communism. Mm. That's communism." You know, you know. Well, and, and then obviously to the to the the American speaker, communism means Soviet state totalitarianism, not actual communism. That's you know, you know the, but there's no differentiation there. You know, so really, like you notice in all other in all other sports, they call the union the players' association. Yeah, are you, are you familiar with the the, yeah. the whole thing? Yeah. So they just guarantee a fifty percent revenue split. And Michael Jordan knew full well that like the rookie out of college doesn't get paid some of Michael Jordan's money. Michael Jordan still gets his. Mm. You're like, just the other kid gets his too. You know? So this this doesn't work in um, in MMA. You know, because MMA fighters are the perfect shills to be anti-union. You know, because they are very literally one another's competitors. Yeah. You know, when you think about like gig economy stuff, you know, like gig economy works perfectly, or you know, because it pits the workers against one another. You know, in a in a in a in a contest for this short-term contract. MMA pits them against one another in a very a literal fist fight. Mm. How ideal is it? It's you couldn't like uh capitalists couldn't dream of a of a better a better sport to have people outspoken about being anti-union. And yeah, you know, and the guys that the guys that have the biggest voices, the guys who've you know retired and been given company jobs and it's in their best personal interests, you know to to be anti forming a union, you know. but for this the, for this reason, MMA fighters are never going to get paid. Mm. A handful of them will. A handful of them make it, and they'll make sure everybody else stays poor. And, you, know, you hear this all the time, you know, the Hagler quote: "It's hard to get up and do your road work in the morning, you know, when you're getting out of silk sheets." Yeah. So you know, yeah. When is it five a.m. when you're in silk sheets? Yeah. Mm. You know, it's impossible to get out of bed in the morning and do your road work. If you don't have a house, mm. the idea of keeping a fighter hungry, this is a metaphor, this is a metaphor for ambition, not physically starving, not mm. unable to live. You think, and if you love fighting, you're like, you want athletes to do better because I want the best athletes. You think like, like, like no disrespect to Cyril Gone. I like, I like the guy as a personality and I think he's a good fighter. You're like, but how did he get the rematch for the title? Mm. You're like, how many MMA fights has he had? Not for he had a good, good kickboxing career, but like he had a handful of MMA fights, already lost in a title bid. You're know, like, what? 
just got one over on Taito Ivasa you know, to get him back in the win column and then straight back into a title fight. You know, against the guy who'd never had a fight in that division before and who'd been out of the ring for however many years. You're like, why are there no good heavyweights? Mm. You're like, why? Well, because if you're a good uh, heavyweight athlete- You're boxing. You're going to go boxing, yeah. yeah. Oh, you if could, you're a good heavyweight athlete, you're doing basketball, you're doing MMA. Oh, yeah, NFL, or you go, yeah. you go to the NFL. What? Yeah. You, could, you could play one season in the NFL and retire a millionaire, or you could fight 10 years in the UFC and never make a month of that guy's wages. Mm. If you're a big guy in the USA, you're going to look at NFL first. Yeah. If that ain't working out for you, boxing, we think, what, what, Dillian White got, what, three million on the same weekend for being on the losing side of a, a world heavyweight title fight? And Francis Ngannou got, what, 500,000... I'm, t- I'm making up the numbers here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something, but it was radically different for being the winner. You're like, why? Because the revenue of these of these events was radically different. So, no, no, this is not the reason. You know, mm. it's because we, we have a, a entirely exploitative system because we're not covered by the Ali Act. You know, we're not covered by anything over here. You know, I mean, we're not even legal, are we? It's just we're just not illegal. Yeah, it's uh, just not criminal. There is, there's a lot of talk at the moment about unionizing with the UFC fighters, right? Well, this is something that we've only heard in the last couple of years. Nobody's going to talk about it publicly because as soon as you do, it's like working for Amazon. You're like, as soon as they catch you talking about unionization. You're in trouble. Yeah, that's you, that's you gone. You know? mm. So, you know, and then, you know, there's a lot of like, a lot of heavily anti-socialist sentiment, you know, amongst fighters. You know, because, you know, so it's a, I mean, it, it is an explicitly right-wing sport. You know, like I mean, the UFC is like Donald the, Trump was in the audience on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Like, so she, Donald Trump's there. Hoy Masvidal starts the "Let's Go Brandon." Chant. You know what "Let's Go Brandon" chant means? That was yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, it, it's a synonym for "Fuck Joe Biden." It's a standing for "Fuck Joe Biden" rather because of some odd broadcast in NASCAR or something. Yeah, which was a weird yeah. way to uh, give a retirement speech. It was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what like, you think like, but George Masvidal's not a fool. So he's realized, like, okay, this is my last he's chance branded. to get on on yeah. this, yeah. You know, to jump so, on that yeah. conservative. Uh, That's it, yeah. So I'm going to yeah. solidify myself uh, as a uh, as a conservative sp- uh, conservative spokesperson, as a Republican. Mm. Yeah, and so yeah, he, he's known precisely what he's doing. You know, the you know, it's this the sport is like explicitly right wing and explicitly anti union, and. I, can't really see how it's going to change one of the problems with that is my friend pointed out the other day when i was lamenting this like a lot of them they're like the ghosts in the sixth sense they don't know they're right wing mm. so it's very very difficult to argue to argue against you know but it, it, it it's a sport that lends itself perfectly to right wing politics and that ties back in we're never going to get a union you know not i can't envisage it and it's and it's a tragedy because then we could have like people making good livings and would get better athletes, so we'd get mm-hmm. better fights. You know, imagine how good the fights would be if the guy who was fighting for the world heavyweight title wasn't also doing another job at the same time. Mm. Madness, madness. Stevie Stevie Miocic is still a fireman, isn't he? Because mm. you know, if he quits his job as a fireman, she probably could, but he wouldn't have a pension. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Yeah. And he's and he's he's a guy who made it, right? Yeah, and I think people like and and people over here like we still have the NHS, you know, like like fighters over here, you know, you break a leg, you know, you break a hand, you go to the hospital and you get seen, you know, like okay, yeah, I got paid enough today. Imagine if you had a U.S. style medical bill, you know, like mm. how much money would you have lost on that fight? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's something they brought in relatively recently, which was the UFC um, healthcare stuff. Mm. 
prior to that they kind of were it was it was discretionary yeah 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 it depends on how they see that person's future mm. you know whether they think it's worth paying for it not whether they morally should pay for it you know but there's a lot of smaller shows over here that even you know uh you know by the time that somebody gets to the ufc you know that they could be getting health care you know but once the nhs is gone you know a lot of guys you know think that's another thing to win is like can i dare to risk this mm. you know because can i afford to go i went i went to hospital after god i don't know how many most of my fights i needed some stitches mm. at least you know um <clears throat> So I think, like, Christ, how much money would I have lost on my career if I'd had a US-style medical mm. bill? Oof, I dread to think. Mm. Yeah, it wouldn't mm. be worth it, would it? No, no. You know, it was barely worth it when I could get free healthcare. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. And uh, then final question I want to ask, just because, you know, you, you are so experienced in coaching. You, you, you've had a lot of guys come through and you've tra- trained a lot of champions up. What is the it factor with a fighter what is a guy that you see early on that you know because there's something about some guys where you just know that they're going to make it in your experience what is that it's really, well that's why that's why it's an x factor isn't it it's mm. very hard to articulate it's very hard to put your finger on you know? and uh it, talent is not the marker i think you you'll hear a lot of people a lot of people say this a lot of the most talented players that have ever walked through the door people are very promising early on oftentimes are front runners because they're, they're used to excelling in sports you know they probably played football at school and they were the captain of the team and then they didn't get picked for the U, for the you know for the the county team or whatever and they got I'm going to do something else and then they start excelling at the next mm-hmm. sport and mm-hmm. so on and so on I had a bunch of guys like this you know you know you think like oh cool got a world beater here and then ah uh, they just they don't have, it's not even the discipline to train necessarily it's just that they expect to get results and they can't cope with it very well when they don't you know, oftentimes there's very general uh, is for me for me it's the it's it's the obsession mm. uh, but again this is what i relate to you know yeah. that i that i can't i can't <clears> relate <throat> to people who aren't who aren't fanatical you know? and so i, I want to see a, a, an obsession you know this is this is uh this is what I, I i can relate to personally i think like the guys that i saw this with was harry and george you know like I organized a organized an event, just an amateur event, and uh, and Harry fought one of my fighters, and like my fighter was a he was a good kid, you know, like he was a jujitsu blue belt, handy tie boxer, you know, like should have beaten anybody at that level that weight, and Harry came in and just just was all over him. Mm. I couldn't believe it. Like I had so much faith in my guy, you know, it wasn't a mismatch, you know, like the uh, you know the, the things were fair. But like this kid was good, my kid was good. Like I really believed in him, you know. And uh, and then Harry totally spoiled him. You know, I was just all over him. Fucking Abdul standing in the opposite, he's in the opposite corner, and he goes, "Hey, Peter, he's smashing your boy!" <laughs> I was like, "Abdul, you bastard!" I'm trying not to laugh because my kid's getting punched on the ground, and Abdul's making me giggle. I feel like he's gonna think I'm a right bastard. Yeah, you know, well, yeah. Harry just was just. Oh, I thought, ah. Uh, Ah, this kid's special. It was just, it was just something about the way that he moved, you know, and the way that he talked. I thought, ah, I know he's got it. And George had fought like some like like a skills bout, exhibition bout, on the same thing. And like George was the same then as he is now. Mm. You know, like he's basically doing the doing the same thing. He just got better and better and better. But he'd already established that blueprint for, blueprint for the kind of fighter he was. But like, 
Abdul uh, Abdul called me up because they, they, they had another jiu-jitsu coach but this guy had the opportunity to, to open his own gym and it was really nice, good opportunity and all that so it meant he had to leave. So Abdul phones me up and goes, right, okay, you're going to come and coach uh, jiu-jitsu at mine. I was like, oh, Abdul, mate, I haven't got time, you know. And, uh, he was like, yeah, right, I'll see you on Tuesday then. Like, you just, you don't say no to Abdul Mohammed, right? It's just, it's impossible. Mm. <laughs> I guess I'll see you then, I just got told. You know. But really, the reason why I went and the reason why I stayed was because I got the chance to work with Harry and George. Mm. You know, and I thought, like, uh, these are guys that really, really could be something. You know, I just like them. You know, it's been, you know, I like, obviously, I've let on that I'm, I'm a little bit jaded and a little bit, uh, a little bit cynical. But I had, uh, I think it must have been George who was fighting at uh, Bellator in Dublin. And uh, and Bellator put on the the song Zombie, which you know, obviously in Dublin, this is mm. like the house just went wild, yeah, you know. And so like the cameras are panning around, and the crowd is everybody's jumping up and, and singing the song. And Harry starts videoing like how special this moment is with the crowd. And I was like, oh, Harry, it's just bullshit. They just they're gonna dub over it and they're gonna make it look as if the reaction to the cranberries was the reaction to a to a fight, mm. you know, like it's just a marketing thing, you know, it's bullshit. And Harry's. It's, this is really happening though, right now. That doesn't matter. This is really happening. Mm. I was like, ah, do you know what it is? This is why I like hanging around with these kids because like, I've forgotten what it's like. Like, I have to experience it vicariously. You know what I mean? Like, mm. you know, it's like, my, I've, I've had those experiences and I can't repeat them anymore, but I can feel a little bit of it coming off them, you know? And it's the same thing with, the, you know, the wins and losses, mm. like I, I can't have that experience anymore, and like I never wanted to coach. I just wanted, I just wanted to be the mm. champion, you know. But you can't do that forever, you know. And I still get to have a little bit of that that experience with him. And sometimes it's bad, you know. Sometimes it's a loss, you know. And I have to go through that all that again, you know. But it's better than it's better than having no emotion, you know. It's better than having none of that in life. So yeah, I think that's why that's why I really like those guys, yeah. I get to I get to just borrow their their enjoyment. Mm. I think that's a beautiful way to to, to finish it. Um, I mean, we just had this since you mentioned it. Are they both fighting next weekend or this weekend? No, it's just George. Next just George is headliner. Yeah, yeah. I see, I see yeah. you there, mate. Uh, Pete, uh, really, thank you very much. We uh, we are almost at two and a half hours. Okay, uh, an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, I mean, uh, a real uh, pioneer of uh uk and, and and mma especially in the northeast up here so a, a real pleasure to have you on uh it's been it's been great to get to spend a little bit of time with you and get to know you a little bit too absolutely uh, brother thanks Thank you very much cheers that is it guys i hope you enjoyed that episode if you want to find out more or follow pete then you can check him out on instagram his handle is newcastle underscore mma underscore bjj you can also check out his website which is mmanewcastle.co.uk and as always, if you want to follow myself, then you can check me on Instagram. My handle is at raspberry underscore ape. Or if you want to follow just the podcast, it is at raspberry ape podcast. My website is raspberryape.com. YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash raspberry ape. Um, and as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it. Um, and if you want to go leave a review on whatever you're listening on, then that would be awesome. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. And I will catch you next time. Take it easy.